Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Creepscast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps. And StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash mrcreeps. Hello everyone, I hope you're all having a good day. We've got another amazing collection of scary stories from the darkest depths of the interwebs. Buckle up and enjoy the ride, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. We have one rule in our town. Never look outside at night if you hear the ringing. Written by Clanks. Hi, I would like to start this off by saying my name is James Smith and I'm 26 years old. I live in a small town in Illinois named Clinton. I have lived here most of my life. I had moved into this town when I was six, right after my dad had passed away from cancer and my mom lost pretty much everything after that. So... She wanted to start fresh here because we have family that lives here in town. So, she took up on the offer of help and a roof to go over our heads. It was hard for me at first to move to a new town in school. While still being upset and depressed that my dad had just passed away. I got used to it though, made new friends, even got married and had two kids. But there's something off about this town. There's a rule that everyone is made to follow, and this is why I'm writing this right now. Our family broke that rule. If you hear the sound of ringing outside between the times of 1.30am to 3.30am, do not look out your window no matter what. I had never known what they meant by this or why we had to follow it. Every time I would ask my mom, pure dread flushed through her face and she would scream at me, Just follow the rules, sweetie, so you can keep you and mommy safe, okay? So I listened and followed it without much thought at all up until last night. And this is where the story begins. It was a cold winter night here in Illinois, like usual. It was right for the period of the year, with being an October night. I was getting ready for bed, putting my two younger boys to bed. I walked out of the room quietly, closing the door and I turned off the hallway light. I made my way down the hallway and into the kitchen, where my wife was sitting in smoking a dimly lit cigarette. Hey, sweetie, did you put the kids to bed? She said with a smile as she proceeded to take another drag from her cigarette. Yeah, I put them to sleep. I said in an exhausted tone. The room went quiet for a second. The only sound that could be heard was the ceiling fan that was on high above us. My wife looked down at her ring inside. How much longer, James? How much longer until we can get out of this dang town? I walked over to the cabinet and opened it up, 
grabbed out a bottle of Jack Daniels and proceeded to pour myself a glass. And I sat on the other side of the kitchen table. I don't know, honey. I'm freaked out about the disappearances too, you know. I want our kids to be able to live safely and comfortably too. I said in an irritated manner. And this dang rule... This dang rule is making it much more difficult. That's why we put earplugs in our ears while they're sleeping. I yelled. I picked up my glass and I finished it in one go. I got up and walked to the kitchen, looking out into the darkness and thinking about what we should do. Let's move to Springfield. It's a lot safer there. My wife started in a desperate tone. Alright, I'll start looking at places in the morning. I said with a fake smile on my face. We both started walking towards our bedroom. We both got ready for bed and laid down, and went to sleep for the night. I woke up to the sound of my alarm buzzing. I sat up and looked around. My wife was still sleeping, so I got out of bed and went to go check on the kids. And they were still sleeping as well. I closed the door and I walked into the kitchen. I got out her old dusty laptop and went onto the internet to try to find us a new home in Springfield. Or pretty much anywhere else at this point. I marked on the ones that I liked the most and looked a little more and then shut the laptop and put it back on the table in the living room. I had to go to work in an hour or so, so I got ready, ate some cereal, and I made my way to work. While driving, I heard on the radio that there had been another disappearance in our town. A ten-year-old boy gone missing in the middle of the night. And if you had any information, to please call the local police department. God, uh, another one. We need to get the heck out of this town, I said in a panicked voice. I worked at the old warehouse on the edge of town. I didn't have much of a special job, just doing normal stuff like using a forklift and moving around crates and packages all day. But the pay was good, so I had stuck with this job for years now. I pulled up and got out of my car and walked in. My day was uneventful. I just did the normal routine that I had done a thousand times over. Before I knew it, it was 6pm, and I put my work clothes into my locker and I started heading to my car. I drove home and I walked into the house. My wife came and greeted me at the door with a smile on her face. How was work, babe? She asked in a joyful tone. It was good. Did you hear there was another disappearance in town? I said. The room went quiet, and we both had a moment of silence and walked to the kitchen. I'm going to call the housing unit in the morning and schedule a meeting. I said in a serious tone. 
We went to bed that night, and in the morning, I woke up. I shut off the alarm and went to head out into the kitchen to make myself a cup of coffee. I got the laptop out and picked the house that we were going to move to. I called the men, we'd talked over the details, and all I had to do was go and fill out the paperwork now. I got dressed and I rushed out the door. I arrived at the place a couple of hours later, and I was greeted by a really nice woman. She had long black hair and was around 5'5", five five and was in a pretty blue dress. Hi, you're James, correct? She said in a cheerful manner. Uh, yes, it's nice to meet you, I said. Here, come with me. I'll give you a tour of the place before we sign the papers over to you, she said. We walked into the house and began to look around. It's nice, I thought to myself. While we were walking around, I started thinking about all the good memories that we could make in this house. I smiled for real for the first time in a while. We got done with the tour and I signed the papers. She handed me the house keys and we shook hands. She got in her car and drove off. And I sat on the porch for what seemed like hours. Before I knew it, it was starting to get dark. I got up and got into my car and I started my way back home. Like before, it took me around a couple of hours to get back home. As I was pulling up the clock, it read 10.30pm. But something didn't seem right though. All the lights were off in the house. Normally, my wife would be waiting up for me. Waiting for me in the kitchen with the light on. I quickly got out of my car and I ran up to the door. It's unlocked, I said in a frightened tone. I had locked it before I had left. I laughed to myself. Maybe Mia had to go out and run errands while I was gone. I opened the door and walked in. It was pitch black. I looked around and started to call for my wife and kids. No response. I started to get scared and then I flipped on the light and my heart sank through my chest. My wife was on the floor in a puddle of blood. I screamed her name and ran over to her. I checked her pulse and I started to cry. She was gone. I got up and ran into my kids room and they were nowhere to be found. The window had been smashed and it appeared like there was a struggle of some sort. How could this be happening? We were so close. I said while screaming and crying. When from behind me, I heard large footsteps and the sound of ringing coming from whatever it was. It's only 10pm. The ringing isn't supposed to be here yet. I thought as I sat there frozen in fear. A loud voice boomed from behind me. Your son broke the rule. Now you will all be punished. I turned around in anger and saw something that would haunt me for the rest of my life. 
A tall, slender, and deformed creature was standing behind me. It had long, talons-like fingers and razor-sharp teeth, and it was huge. It was around eight foot four. It was holding my youngest boy by the throat. My boy was lifeless and had an expression of fear on his face. What did you do to my family? I screamed at the top of my lungs at the creature. Like I said before, they broke the rule. I changed the time by a little. Hope you don't mind. Mid smiled out of joy and I blacked out at that moment. I woke up lying face down on the floor. It took a second to collect myself. I quickly snapped back into reality and sat up. Mia, my boys. I called up but then remembered the night before. I stood up and dialed 911. When they arrived, they took my statement and a missing person report was put in place. After they left, I drove back to the house where we were going to live in and I sat on the porch and I started to cry. But then I heard my youngest boy call out from the woods. Daddy, help me. I shot up and bolted towards the sound of his voice, calling out his name. No response. My brain must be playing tricks on me. I thought to myself. I fell to the ground and gave up. A year has passed and I'm currently living in the new house. I couldn't handle going back to that other house. Every time I did, that night kept replaying in my head and it drove me crazy. I can't get over the fact that if I would have been there for them, they wouldn't be dead. That night, I always have the same dream. Walking into that dang house and trying to save them, but I can't, I can't. It almost feels like that thing that I had seen that night. Like it doesn't want me to forget and to move on with my life. It's like I'm all a part of its sick little game. At night, I can hear what I can only imagine is him walking back and forth. And that ringing, that cursed ringing, it doesn't stop. It never does. I have been tempted to just look out the window, but I, uh, I just can't bring myself to do it. That's what he would want. He wants me to look out. Just to show me a sickening scene of my family. I know I don't have much time left. I just... I can't take it anymore. So, I'm writing this now to warn you 
If you ever move into Clinton, Illinois, never break the one rule. You'll regret it for the rest of your life. Thank you very much to today's sponsor, BetterHelp. If you've ever felt like something is interfering or preventing you from attaining your personal goals, I've been in that same boat. It can be extremely difficult pulling yourself out of a rut, but realizing that you want to change is half the battle. BetterHelp can aid you in changing your life or mentality for the better by providing a personal license, a professional therapist that matches your needs. You can start communicating in as little as 48 hours. One of the greatest things about BetterHelp is that it provides a broad range of expertise that may not be available to someone locally, and at a lesser rate than you would be able to find in person. The service is available for clients worldwide, and on top of that, you can log in at any time you're available and be able to contact your professional immediately through messages. You'll receive timely and thoughtful responses to any questions or concerns you may have. Additionally, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions and avoid the hassle of sitting in a crowded or uncomfortable waiting room. Mental health and well-being is a subject that's very important to me, and I think it's amazing that more people are seeking the resources that they need. BetterHelp has over 1 million users who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Again, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's better, H-E-L-P. And Creepscast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps. Mankind should have stayed away from Mars. Written by J. Group. The first manned mission to Mars began well enough. Launched without the knowledge of the general public, it lasted for almost a decade, silencing the naysayers in NASA and abroad. It was by all measures a success, until this series of unfortunate events occurred. These unexplained phenomena brought the entire project to a crashing halt. All contact was lost after nine years of successful habitation on the Red Planet. Something tragic had happened to the crew, and at least one of them had seemingly gone insane. It was suspected that science officer Nathan Flanders had killed the rest of the astronauts on the mission, and had taken his own life following his final transmission. That's where the four of us came in. We were sent to conduct a salvage operation and tasked with surviving against all odds on the barren planet's surface. Instructions were to use what we could from the old base. The multi-billion dollar array of advanced equipment was invaluable, and some of it was reportedly irreplaceable. Our flight and landing on the surface went well, proceeding without incident. Despite that, our nerves were on edge and the four of us were jittery with anticipation as we made our way from the landing craft to the hatch, which led to the underground habitation unit. The area surrounding us looked surprisingly similar to Earth, a desolate desert region scattered with flat rocks and boulders, and a sheer wall of rock that jutted out from the ground upwards 
stood just behind the old habitation unit's coordinates. We bounded toward the hatch, stumbling awkwardly in the lower gravity. I felt occasional moments of success when a step forward was executed just right, but otherwise it was awkward and clumsy. I fell over at one point and bounced back up after a couple of attempts. There is a smile stretching across my face though, and I looked over to see Denise was doing the same. We couldn't help it. We were each fulfilling a lifelong dream, and despite it perhaps because of the tension of the situation, we began to grin like idiots and laugh. Finally, we had reached our destination. Raymond pried open the hatch door. Dust and sand poured off the flat surface as he heaved it open. Clearly, it had been a while since anyone had gone down there, into the pitch blackness below. The possibility that anyone was still alive in the habitation unit was unlikely, if not impossible. But we had been prepared for nearly any situation. There had been enough food and water supply for one man to survive, and we were told there was a slim chance that we would be forced to defend ourselves if compromised crew members were still alive down there. Last contact had been made with Nathan Flanders, the failed missions science officer. He had claimed there was something down below, in the area being dug out for the base's expansion, some sort of organism, and that it had infected the crew. He had called it telepathic slime mold, according to reports. Ridiculous, of course. Nothing could live in the freezing temperatures of the caverns beneath the surface of Mars. It was far too cold for that. But the rationale for that specific delusion made some sense. Flanders had researched slime mold extensively during his formatic academic years, so it seemed to follow logically that he would revert back to thinking about it during a mental break. At least that was what the psychoanalyst back at base thought that there was some traumatic event underlying all of this that he had failed to disclose on his psych report. As we climbed down into the habitation unit, I began to suspect that we had been wrong to think that he had been lying, that we had been wrong about everything. Whispering voices were speaking in my mind, but I dismissed it as nerves and adrenaline, my overworked mind playing tricks on me. The darkness was a total as we descended the ladder. By the time that we got down to the floor and switched on our headlamps, it was too late. The hatchet slammed shut above us automatically, and we looked around in horror to see the controls to open it up again had been covered by yellow, slimy webbing that writhed and pulsated as if alive. It was disorienting and surreal, and for a moment... I felt like a fly who had fallen into an elaborate labyrinthine spiderweb. It surrounded us in spiraling whirls that enveloped everything in a many-stranded maze of stringy, serrated slime mold. All of the habitation unit and its high-tech interior was covered with the stuff. It was built up on the walls and on the ceiling, covering the floors and leaving only the ladder and the small space around the base of it open as if waiting for us, not wanting to alert us to its presence until it was too late and we were trapped. The yellow webs writhed and moved all around us, reaching out tendril-like towards us from the walls and stretching out to touch us. 
Oh my god, what is this? I heard Aisha whisper breathlessly through the radio. He was right. It wasn't a delusion. It was all true. We need to get out of here now. The captain ignored me, moving forward despite my objections. Hang on, said Raymond. We have to see if we can salvage anything. Maybe we can do something to get rid of this stuff. At the mere mention of that, the yellow slime mold began to whip itself into a frenzy. A piercing ringing noise invaded my mind to my ears. It felt like someone was stabbing into them with sharp pins. My knees buckled from the pain, and I nearly fell to the floor. But the sensation subsided a few moments later, and we all relaxed. Why do you not seem at least a little bit phased by all of this? I asked Raymond, suddenly suspicious. I felt like he was the only one not even remotely surprised by the fact that Nathan Flanders had been telling the truth. There really was a life on Mars, and it wasn't human. The three of us would never have come if you had known the truth, he said under his breath. His words were in a monotone, not sounding like himself at all. And besides, it was classified. You knew? I shouted at him in rage. How could you drag us here knowing this mind-controlling slime was real? As I spoke, the yellow gunk was stretching, spreading and climbing on my boots toward my ankles. I tried to push it away with my hands and it got stuck to my fingers and expanded, rapidly growing up my hands and out of my wrists. We need to get out of here, I said, no longer caring what he was going to do. We need to get back to the ship. To do what? We need this place. There's no way the four of us survive here without the equipment in this HAB unit. It took over a decade to set all of this up. We just came to try to pick up the pieces, remember? You want to give up on that already? When he said it like that, I had to think twice. You have a plan, right? Something that you didn't tell us about. Another secret that you kept from us. A grin spread across his face. You're right, I do. I'm trying not to think about it too much, though, since we're not alone in our minds anymore. Try to think about something else. Golf or something, okay? Just don't get thinking too hard about what I might be planning to do. This slime stuff ain't gonna like it. I nodded, resigned to follow him a little further. We had come this far, after all. We continued deeper into the narrow confines of the HAB unit. The webbing reached out and I felt it touching me in places outside of my suit, moving towards my helmet, but I tried not to panic. I noticed Aisha had the same calm demeanor as Ray, and I wondered if she knew what we were in for as well. Do you think it's possible that Nathan is still alive? And Denise asked, her voice shaking. Doubtful. Movement came from up ahead and I saw something in the shadows. A shape lurching forward. The thing which came out from the next room clearly once was an astronaut, but it was not Nathan Flanders. A voice rang clearly through my mind and I heard it was a woman speaking softly. Her tone was soft and lilting, almost a sing-song. I found myself wanting to go to her as I listened and looked down to see the web slime moving up my leg further now, almost to my midsection crawling up my body and encasing me in it. 
I tried to back away, but I found it was difficult to move suddenly. The yellow gunk was becoming more tenacious, gripping me and holding me in place like vines. Won't you stay with us? Be one with us. Don't you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself? The voice asked inside my mind. Her face came out from the shadows and I saw now that her entire head was covered with the yellow webbing. It had reached in from a crack in the helmet and it had spun itself around her features like cotton candy. A mask of it covered her face, but it was translucent enough to see through in places. The tendrils of yellow slime webbing had enveloped her body and it carried her across the floor towards us as if she were floating upon a cloud. What did you do to the rest of them? I heard myself asking aloud. We needed nourishment. It was such a long sleep. But now we were all fed and looking for more hosts. If you want to live here, this is the only way. If you prefer to die, that can be arranged as well. Raymond was reaching for something in his bag. I tried not to think about it too much, what he was planning to do. He pulled out a weapon of some kind. I had no idea that it even existed or had been brought on the journey. But then again, no one had told me that we would be fighting for our lives against mutant telepathic slime mold either. The horrifying web-covered astronaut who was coming towards us was close now, only a few meters away in the confined space. Ray squeezed the trigger and the gun let out a blast of reddish-white light, like a wide laser beam. It went past our attacker, missing wide. She was closing in now, the webbing bringing her towards us like a wicked chariot. He fumbled in his bag for something and pulled out a small square box. Pushing a button on the gun, it ejected a smoking cartridge and I realized he was reloading, but he had almost no time. The horrifying creature was almost within striking distance now. Slamming the fresh battery into the slot, he pulled the trigger just as the web-covered astronaut thing was mere inches from him. The blast ripped a hole through the center of the creature, and she let out a piercing scream which ripped through my mind. It took several moments to quiet, but still lingered like my ears were ringing. Ray pulled another fresh battery pack out from his bag and changed it for the old one. It seemed that the gun was single fire and it needed to be reloaded after each laser burst, but still, it was a formidable weapon. Another top secret military project, I guessed. The possessed astronaut woman was lying on the ground, twitching and writhing, moaning in pain. Raymond walked towards her and pointed the weapon at her head and then he pulled the trigger once again. At point-blank range, it obliterated the head of the possessed astronaut, putting her out of her misery and stopping her never-ending torment. I shuddered at the thought of having my body controlled by a parasitic creature, controlling me like a puppet. This horrifying mental image rattled me badly, especially when I looked down at my hands and feet to see them being covered by the exact same stuff. Enough, Ray. We're lucky to be alive after that. Now can we please get the heck out of here? Raymond looked me in the eyes and loaded a fresh battery into the gun. Not even close. We have to keep moving. We have to get to the source of it. 
I have coordinates. It'll be down in the caverns below the HAB unit. Are you insane? We don't even know if there's a source to this madness. And even if it exists, we'll never get to it. Look at this stuff. It's all over us. Pretty soon it'll be covering our visors and we won't be able to see anything. We'll die down here like the last crew did. Let's get topside now and if we're lucky, the sun will kill it for us. Suddenly, the slime mold sprang to life again, whipping its tendrils at us and then starting to squeeze my legs painfully like boa constrictors. I tried to lift them up to turn around and it felt like I was stuck in molasses. It took every ounce of my strength to turn away from him and start heading back towards the ladder. If you two want to live, I suggest that you come with me. He's got a death wish. I muttered over the radio to Denise and Asia as I moved past them in the confined space. They looked hesitant to leave Raymond alone down there. Before I could get away, the webbing reached out and grabbed me with long tendrils from behind and started wrapping me up like vines. It went under my arms and around my waist and then around my neck, trying to squeeze the helmets off my head so it could get to my flesh. It got me, I screamed. Help. Denise grabbed a blade from the supply bag that she was carrying and went to work sawing at the tendrils that had wrapped themselves around me. Hang on, I got you. Meanwhile, Aisha moved past and caught up with Raymond, her face looking hurried and uncaring of my predicament. Leave them, Raymond said to her, and she nodded. They stepped over the astronaut's corpse and continued through the hab towards the back end, where it led towards the caverns, to the sores. I screamed at them, cursed at them both, knowing how they had been aware all along. They had both been briefed on what had really happened here, things that I hadn't known about until just then. Denise was cutting at the ropes of the webbing that were holding me there, but every time that she cut one loose, another grabbed hold. It's hopeless, I said to her. Just go. Get back to the ship and tell them what happened. Tell them that this place is a lost cause. It's a death sentence for anyone who comes here. Her face was still determined, her eyes focused. She finally got one of my arms free and handed me the knife, grabbing another from her belt. I'm not leaving you, so shut up and cut. I turned my body away from the wall as she cut these strands holding my waist free. Now, it was only my arm that was still wrapped up in the webbing. It pulled at me and crushed my arm painfully as I tried to pull away. Screaming, I cut haphazardly at it, hacking and sawing with reckless abandon. Denise was cutting at another large piece and although more began to wrap around me, we had the upper hand now. Slashing at them with every ounce of energy we had, I finally managed to pull myself free. See, I told you, Denise said smirking. Now come on, let's get out of here. We were both semi-covered in the yellow webbing, which was now feeling heavy and cumbersome on my legs and hands, as it expanded and purposefully slowed us down, resisting our every movement. The control panel was covered in the stuff, but I remembered suddenly from my training that there is a manual release up on the hatch door. It had been installed in the event of a power failure. I managed to reach the ladder and look back to see Denise just behind me. Beginning to climb was difficult, the yellow slime mold sticking to my boots and sucking me back down like wet cement. 
With an extreme effort, I got my boot up on the first ladder, and I began to climb. The hatch door wouldn't open at first. It didn't help that I was terrified and full of panic, suddenly forgetting all my training. I began to slam my fist against it, mad with fear and unable to focus. A slime mold was climbing up my visor now, covering it so I couldn't see. My breathing was coming fast and I found myself hyperventilating, feeling like I was drowning in it. Finally, my fingers found the latch and I pulled on it, feeling the satisfying click of it opening. Sunlight spilled in as I swung it open and I climbed up into the air. The yellow webbing began to retreat from the light, recoiling and peeling back from my visor like it was melting. It preferred the darkness. Denise and I managed to get back to the landing craft. We got back inside after making sure that we had gotten rid of all the stuff from our suits. Immediately, we sent a transmission back to base, explaining what had happened. After waiting a long while, they answered back. Any word from Raymond and Aisha? Did they set off the device? You would have felt a tremor like a small earthquake. So, that was their plan. Some sort of device to destroy the stuff at its source. I still didn't understand why they didn't just tell us the truth. But then I supposed I wouldn't have gone if they did. Perhaps the device was some sort of bomb that would make the organism inert and harmless. Or maybe Raymond and Aisha were going to sacrifice themselves to set it off. Either way, I was glad that I'd gotten out in time. I responded back to the base. No, we haven't heard anything from them, and we haven't felt anything yet. But then a moment later, we did feel something. An explosion from beneath us. The ground caved in below the landing vessel, and we were thrown to the wall as the entire landing craft plunged down into a huge sinkhole that had just been created. When everything settled, I opened my eyes to see Raymond and Aisha staring at us through the window of the landing vessel. In the darkness, the yellow slime mold still covered their suits. It was on their visors now, and it had found its way inside and under their faces, and into their eyes and mouth, nostrils and ears. They were being controlled by the parasitic slime mold now. It was controlling their actions, and they had used the device designed to destroy it to instead bring us down below, into the darkness, where we would be vulnerable to it. We held the doors closed as they pulled on the latch, trying to get into the ship. There was a steel rod which we had managed to wedge the door closed with, at least for now. But still, it wouldn't hold forever. I can already see the yellow webbing sneaking in through the edges of the door, punching through weak points in the hall and growing vine-like into our living space. It is spreading and moving towards us steadily, to our cramped spot in a corner where we watch them encroaching. There are still people at NASA who want the public to know the truth, to know about this cover-up. They said that they'll get this out there for us, one way or another, because they know as well as I do. The Red Planet is damned, and the human race should never return here. You can find some weird stuff in the woods. Written by 02321.
People are disgusting creatures that leave trash everywhere. That's alright by me. I made some dumb choices back in the day. I spent a year or so locked away and now I can't find a job. Lord knows I'm trying. My mother, bless her, lets me stay with her until I can find something to pay my way. My hobby started when I was walking back home from a job interview. Even someone as dumb as me can tell you was a no-go. When you have no job, you have no gas money. I walked everywhere and when you walk everywhere, you see the amount of trash on the streets. I saw a beer bottle and a plastic bag to carry it home in. And I picked it up. The dime that I would get from it was nothing when you have no job and gas money. And when you're living off your mother at my age, you can't afford to leave a dime in the street when you saw it. I was lucky enough that I found another liquor bottle that was worth a whole quarter. Now, that got me hooked. I did keep looking for a job and found a part-time gig at a fast food joint. They treated me like trash and I was only getting 15 hours a week. But it was like that beer bottle on the side of the road. When you have nothing, you don't leave a dime in the street and when you have nothing, you don't leave a job that barely pays you. In my spare time, I kept doing my civic duty and I cleaned the streets. Pop cans is a good market. People just throw them anywhere. Aluminum can be recycled forever. I learned that from the metal recycle guy, so it's always in some sort of demand. Prices go up and down on it though. Some days it's 60 cents a pound, and others it can be 90 cents a day. And it doesn't take much to make up a pound. Only like 30 cans, depending on the size. Now, I pick up cans if I'm walking home from work or I'm walking to work. I try and hold on to them until the prices go up, but sometimes we really need bread and a few bags of cans can pay for that. Anyway, that's the setup for why on my days off, I walk around in the woods. It's not because I liked nature or nothing. People are lazy. They go camping and they leave their trash. I make a pretty good amount off of picking up beer cans and bottles from campsites and high school parties. I got nothing else to do, so I clean up the rest of the trash, too. Even stuff that I don't really make money on. I saw a dead squirrel with plastic wrapped around its neck once. A sad sight that I didn't like. I'm not a hippie, but I just got nothing better to do. Like, I'm in the woods, right? I'm walking to an area that's kind of out of the way. An old truck kids like to party and is always loaded with beer bottles and cans. I can always find something there. I'm just walking, minding my own business. I turn my head to look around and to make sure that I'm not lost. The truck is not on a hiking trail and it's easy to get turned around in the woods if you don't keep track of the markers. Like the double fallen trees or the huge ass rocks. I was looking for the huge rock and I saw something. Now the forest didn't go silent or anything. Nothing happened when I saw it. It felt like something should have happened when you find such a thing, but it really wasn't a special moment. 
I just looked over and between branches and bushes, I saw a perfectly fresh looking head. I thought it was a mask or some weird toy, but it was very clearly someone's head. Just sitting in the middle of the woods, dead eyes looking up at the sky. At first, I did a double take not being able to believe what I was seeing, and then a third take, and then I nearly got sick, figuring it was best not to puke and ruin a possible crime scene, I forced it back down, and plus, I didn't want the cops to think that I was some sort of wussy that pukes over something like this, it wasn't even that bad looking. At the distance I saw it was at, I couldn't tell if it was a guy or a gal. Only that they had short hair and pale skin. This was not my place to butt in. I would go to the ranger station and use their phone to report the head anonymously. I wasn't nothing more to do with it. Backtracking through the woods, I paused every few feet to stick branches into the dirt, making a path. I figured these city cops that are going to come to collect the head won't be very good at hiking, and the markers would make it easier to be found. And that was my plan before it started to rain. It was only a little at first, but it made me stop and think how sorry that head was. It belonged to a person once, and now it's in the middle of the woods being rained on. I cursed myself and decided to turn around to cover it in the very least. I had a brand new, never used, clear recycling bag that I could cover it with. I don't know if that would ruin the crime scene or anything like that. I had gloves and I doubted that could be tracked back to me. I was walking back, following my own trail when I smelled the worst thing ever in my life. It smelled like a skunk rolled around in other dead skunks. I hadn't smelled the head when I was close to it. Breathing through my mouth, I could even taste the foul air. I didn't see anything, but it made me worry I somehow stumbled on the rest of the body. But it was strange that I hadn't smelled this when I walked in that direction to start with. I looked through the dense trees and listened to the light rain fall around me. I'd come out for a few nickels and dimes, but not for anything of this. If it wasn't so reformed, I would have turned tail and laughed. And yet, I was looking for some poor dead soul in the middle of the woods. And let me tell you, I didn't expect it to find me. Honest to God, I swear on my life that it found me. Mind you, my life isn't worth nothing to swear on. So I swear on my mother's life. She's an older woman supporting her no-good adult kid, so you know she's worth swearing on. And I don't give a crap if you don't believe me. Looking around the trees, I heard branches cracking. It was for certain footsteps. Expecting a hiker or a camper... I looked towards them to ask for help with the whole dead body thing, and I was greeted by a sight that made me want to puke all over again. Standing a few feet away from me was, in fact, a headless corpse. I knew it was a corpse from the smell and the look of the poor guy. Aside from the lack of a head, it was all in one piece. 
Its skin was all shriveled up like a mummy. It still had some rotten to do, though, but it was mostly skin and bones. The thing didn't have a shirt on. Only a dirty sheet tied around the waist for a weird sense of modesty. I tell ya, if something can look down your empty neck hole, no one's gonna care about your junk. I really doubted what I was seeing. I don't mess with drugs. I've seen what it does to a person. Even as it was coming closer towards me, I didn't move cause I was so sure it wasn't real. I must have adjusted to the smell cause I wasn't able to lose my lunch when it stopped in front of me. The thing was tall too. Even without a head, it towered over me looking down. Uh, kind of. Uh, I said oh so very gracefully. What else could I say in this situation? I, uh, found a head. It's a bit too fresh to be yours. Just follow the trail of the sticks back there. I stopped talking and flinched when it reached out and it took my elbow. I half expected it to rip my arm off and take my head. But no. It just held my arm in silence and it was half expecting something of me. Even throw my shirt sleeve, its bony fingers made my skin crawl. But to be honest, once you got used to it, it really just felt like an old person's hand. It clicked that the thing wanted me to guide it to the head. I guess it couldn't see, but I had no idea how it heard what I said, or why I even spoke to a headless corpse in the first place. I forced myself to walk back following my trail with the thing matching my steps. I questioned all my life choices that brought me up to that moment. The sad thing was I was already doing what I could to fix those life choices. I was staying out of trouble as best I could. I was doing my best to get a job and support my mother. I didn't run with the crowd of people that had got me into crappy situations in the past. And yet, I was still walking beside a headless corpse. I could have been having a breakdown, which would be a fair idea. But these things don't run in my family and I wasn't stressed. Not until I saw the head. Maybe that was it. I was in so much shock seeing a decapitated head I broke. And I was hallucinating a corpse to go with it. Seemed like a logical idea to me. But wasn't the idea behind mental breakdowns is you're not aware that you're having one? Oh well, it didn't matter. I wasn't going to change what I was doing. I led the course back to where I had stopped before. I didn't want to get closer to the head. And I was lucky enough that the corpse seemed to be able to sense it. It let go of my arm and walked a bit awkwardly towards the head. That looked like it was just sitting there waiting to be picked up. With the same motions of a blind man reaching for his glasses, the large corpse patted around on the ground until it found what it was looking for. I watched as it picked it up and ran a bony hand over the face. I wondered if it could see the face anyway. 
or even if this corpse had any brain at all. Seeing them together, I knew the head didn't belong to the corpse. It was too small and the skin tones were way off. It made me wonder where the head of the corpse was, or where the missing second body was. Was it also walking around the woods just looking? What had done this to them, and why were they even here? I was certain that I would never get the answers. When the corpse ran a hand over the head's face, I swore that I saw it smile. Its dead eyes stayed the same, but I felt like it was happy it had been found. Um, I'll be going now. I took a few steps back to excuse myself from the whole thing. The corpse turned towards me, scaring me enough to stop for a second. It raised its arm and it gave me a little wave. You would think that I would have stayed out of those dang woods after that. But like I said, it's a good place to get bottles and cans, so I still go. I didn't report what I had seen because I had no head and no proof. I do check the missing cases from time to time, trying to see a face that I recognize. I've heard stories from the campers who had started to recognize me. They gave me their bottles instead of taking them back themselves. Some story about a monster ripping heads off unwary campers and adding it to a collection. There had only been one corpse found without a head in the past ten years, and that was enough to start all the stories. But the corpse had been found with a lot more things missing, and they even found out who it belonged to. But still, it became a ghost story. But I don't feel like that's the case. A monster ripping off heads, I mean. I think humans are the ones killing and dumping bodies out in the woods. Sometimes... The bodies are found, and sometimes they're not. Animals eat everything, even the heads. But the monster they're talking about, it might find those heads first. I think it's taken the heads to remember the faces of the dead. The faces that might never be found or put back together again. If humans found them... That might make them in an awful police sketch. That might never lead to the person actually being found. I think it's a nice thought. That no matter what, at least someone is going to remember their face. That someone is going to know how they looked. Monster or not. Or maybe it just eats them. Who knows when it comes to weird, headless corpses. Today's sponsor is one that hits a bit closer to home for me. Many of us have been affected by the global pandemic that has confined us to our homes for the last year and some months. If you're anything like me, it's prevented you from being able to see your loved ones and spend time with them as you normally would. This forced separation has been tough for myself and many families. But I think it really helped me redefine my appreciation for everyone that supported me throughout the years. 
and no one has supported me more than my grandpa. I haven't been able to spend as much time with him as I would like lately, which makes me want to make up for lost time. That includes getting him a really awesome gift for Father's Day, coming up here very soon. The gift I landed on this year is StoryWorth, an online service that helps your dad, grandfather, uncle, or any father figure you may have in your life share their stories and create a sentimental gift that can be cherished by the entire family. I believe that a person's history or their story, so to speak, is extremely important. StoryWorth helps the father figure in your life reminisce and compile all of their most profound experiences into one amazing collection that you can take in for yourself or share with your loved ones. StoryWorth will email the recipients of your gift every week with a different story prompt. Questions you've normally never thought to ask, like, What things are you proudest of in life? Or, what is your favorite story about your father? The questions are always impactful and the answers are always interesting. After a full year, StoryWorth will compile all of your recipient stories, including photos into an amazing keepsake book that is shipped for free. What I love about StoryWorth is that it's helped countless families learn about each other in ways they otherwise wouldn't have. Give your dad the most meaningful gift this Father's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash mrcreeps. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash mrcreeps for $10 off. I encountered something in Siberia. We are all in grave danger. Written by Harold Keba. It was long ago when I worked at Station 13 in the deep Siberian waste, and I was much younger than now. Station 13 was a Soviet outpost, and the Cold War was still brewing back then. On a day in late autumn, six days after some shooting stars had lit up the dark night, one of our supply planes brought news of a village some days walk away. The little settlement had seemingly been attacked, as there was white smoke rising from the wooden houses, and no people were to be seen anymore. Therefore, some of us decided to get to the village and look for survivors and the cause of the catastrophe. The Siberian landscape is not easily passable in many parts, so we had to use horses instead of cars for traversing the rocky, wild areas. Our small group had started the journey in the early morning hours, slowly fighting a way through a thicket of coniferous trees. And despite the green all around us, the surroundings had felt bleak and barren. All the tree trunks lying around halfway rotten reminded us of the mysterious explosion from half a century ago, a graveyard of once mighty plants. It had already become noon when the forest lay finally behind us and we managed to move on a bit quicker. And the village got close when the sun had already started to set, sending down its cold light. Passing by a clear creek, we made for the hillsides where plants grew rampant, and my gaze wandered across the many trees in the distance, looking for survivors of the happenings that we had set out to investigate. Russian summer days are comfortably warm and therefore... We were not forced to wear thick clothing and traverse frozen lakes or snowy hills. 
The smell of fresh and healthy nature was in the air, and I almost started dreaming while my horse carried me onwards. It slowly got cooler, and the terrain got rougher and rougher. I still searched the horizon, looking for hollows or caves where some poor people in need might have hidden themselves. The predatory animals around those hills were nothing to underestimate, and they smelled blood over long distances, making a wound even more dangerous for possible survivors, if there were any to begin with. People from around here would normally know how to deal with the wilderness, but in shock and terror, knowledge is easily forgotten. When we had almost reached the village, I spotted five bears charging towards our little group. The horses had been restless for a while already, but the view of those big predators made them panic and we had a hard time trying not to be thrown off. One of us, a man from the KGB like me, had taken a shotgun for emergency situations and pointed it at the charging animals, ready to pull the trigger. I wondered whether agitating them with a shot was a good idea, but I also trusted in my colleague to not do anything rash. Indeed, I was right. The man waited patiently as the others tried to get their horses back under control. The bears had almost reached us, darting towards us at terrifying speeds. My heart was beating heavily. I tightened my grip around my pistol, ready to aid my colleague. Stop! One of the others suddenly screamed. His voice was trembling, confused. When the bears had come even closer, I noticed that something was wrong with them. The moment I realized what it was, I wished that I would have never joined the expedition in the first place. I looked at the animals, disturbed by what I saw. The bears ran right past us, not even giving off a sign of having noticed us. Their eyes and their motions were radiating a bottomless terror. They were fleeing. Soon, I spotted smaller groups of animals nearby, also running across the ridges and hills, squeaking and screaming like a frightened swarm. The horses suddenly started to lose it as well. They rose and I only narrowly managed to hold onto my saddle. The others reacted quickly enough as well, and all of us barely stayed on top of our animals. There were flocks of birds flying past and towards a horizon far behind us. Beyond the hills and trees where all the animals had come from, I suddenly sensed an alien presence that made my skin crawl. The taste of acid filled my mouth. Never had there been such a terror in my mind. It was like a slice of Hades had descended upon the world behind the ridges making a bottomless fear resurface deep within all living things that had gotten too close to it. Carried by our horses, we fled. Fled far away across hills and stones and creeks, through thorns and vines and small patches of Siberian trees. Until the terror had faded away and the horses fell to the ground in exhaustion. That evening, we set up camp on the slope of one gravelly hill nearby, close to the rim of a small forest of pine trees. When a little fire had been lit, we finally found some time to rest and process the strange event that we had been a part of. And despite a lot of alcohol, 
Sleeping was out of the question for a long time, as I was aware of something being out there between the hills, some entity on malevolence lurking. The madness that crept into my mind and the intoxication made me dream up a horrid display of terrible visions, and I was thrown into an abyss of nightmares. In the next morning, I woke up shivering and hungover, as the night had been cold and long. I was not the first one that had woken up, and it quickly became clear that something was wrong. Some men were sitting around the campfire, cooking juicy beans. They slowly told me that many of the horses had not lived through the night. The flight had driven them to the brink of death, as the freezing temperatures under the moon's gaze had pushed them over. With sadness, I looked at the cadavers of our companions close by. The terror still echoed through my mind, but the presence was gone, and there were also no animals fleeing anymore. Soon, we sat together around the fading fire. Nobody knew where they were, as our flights had been without direction. I could only estimate that, on foot, it would take us days to get back to the station. Many cursed at the fact that we could not really call for help in this no-man's land. There were also arguments about whether we should try and find a way back towards the village, or whether we should flee as cowards. Most did not want to go back, and in my head the fear also warned me against it, but there were some protests. Were we this cowardly, this meek? Not a single man denied the panic that had gotten its hold of us, but some played it down and were intent on heading back. The debate was getting more heated minute by minute when a woman stumbled out of the branches, about 40 years of age and judging by her clothing, belonging to one of the Shamanic tribes living here in the Siberian wastelands. She seemed insecure exhausted and was heavily shaking. We were quick to ensure that no danger was stemming from our group. As some men wanted to tell her about the event of the day before, she interrupted, lost in thoughts. You felt it as well, didn't you? That entity. We don't even know whether it was an entity yet. Someone immediately interrupted, but without much conviction. I, I am sure of it. I saw it on one of my journeys, in my dreams, she muttered. She sat down and we hurried to give her something to drink. In your dreams, isn't that a part of your tradition? Dreamwalking. I was a bit skeptic, but also curious. I had already seen things before that defied all logic. It is. I was out there, close to it. Her hands were shivering, tightly grabbing onto the old cup someone had given to her. You were there. Please, tell us. That might make planning our next move easier. Someone said, hopefully. I do not believe such drivel. Another one groaned, but we quickly told him to shut up. The woman took another sip and her eyes started to drift off, but she soon snapped out of it. As you might have guessed by my clothes, I'm a shaman. Some of you will think of me as a charlatan. It's fine by me. But our culture is spread across these lands and you will know. 
and has been for ages. My skills in dreaming were never the best, even though my people expect that from me. My nightly strolls and visions were always crazy and ambiguous and save for one or two nightmares, always harmless. But when those fires crossed the sky and rained down upon the earth, everything changed. The night after those falling stars, I found myself standing in a village. It had been struck by the stones from the heavens. It was dark and the moonlight was held off by clouds, but I could still see some things. Four cabins had been destroyed entirely, and only scorched stumps were coming out of the ground in their place. I could smell death, could hear the cries of the people who had lost their friends and families. The road was bumpy, and I had to walk some steps to get a better look at the impact crater. It looked like the ground had been ripped away. And then, there were piercing screams. They came from the houses close by. Suddenly, I stood in the living room, where a family by the looks of it had just started eating dinner. A man, his wife, and two boys. They were lying down on the ground, shaking by spasms, suffering the pains of oncoming death. I just stood there, looking on as their skin started to become strangely white and coarse, turning into a lime-like substance. Their panicked eyes turned red as their veins started to burst. Their throats went silent, and a terrible quietness made my ears go mad. Then, there were other screams. Louder and louder, the chorus of voices grew, begging for their lives and for their God to save them. Soon, however, that was over as well and left was only a dead village. Left were only the remains of its citizens, looking like statues slowly turning into white dust. The woman started crying. After having woken up, I told my mentor of the dream, but he just fell silent and ordered me never to visit that place ever again to my mind. I immediately told him that I had not done so on purpose, and that a strange power had placed me there, but he just advised me to take some herbs for better dream control before going to sleep. <laughs> that sounds insane, and you think that what you saw was real? One of the men asked. I think so, yes. The woman replied hesitantly. So, the presence is a disease from space. I asked in disbelief, my hair standing on edge. She looked into my eyes and I spotted a fear beyond everything I had ever seen. No, that was not my only dream. The woman took another sip from the cup and continued... In the following night, I found myself standing in the village again, but the situation had gotten a lot worse. The houses had turned white and begun to fall apart in some places. The corpses I found in the houses had almost entirely turned to dust, slowly covering the floors of all those ill-fated homes. In the third night, the mist started to rise. Mist? What mist? Someone wanted to know but the woman already continued her tale. It was a white dust, and I think breathing it in would immediately kill any living thing. My body wandered through the empty streets, and I saw the houses falling apart, almost as if I had witnessed centuries passing. 
eating away at them. It did not get worse than that. For a while, at least. But yesterday... Yesterday, the mist got denser. It started to taste sour. It felt so real. And then I saw it for the first time. She buried her face in her hands and took a deep breath. When she had calmed down a bit, she continued. What did you see? I asked her. I was getting sick. That dream, it did not come at night, but suddenly at noon, I got sleepy all of a sudden. Barely managing to lie down, I lost consciousness and dove into the dream. Everything was as in the visions before. A thick mist, fading houses. But there were no corpses anymore. Just pieces of clothing, covered in white dust. However, most of these substance had gone. The streets and the houses were barely visible. And I had to concentrate to see them. The white fog covered everything now. And then... A shape appeared in the distance, closing in on me, until I could see it vividly. I... It is strange. I cannot describe it precisely. It was neither man nor woman, neither old or young. Its skin must have been white, white as the dust, but do you know that feeling? When you see something in the corner of your eye, like a veil, ungraspable... Well, it was like that. I can see it in front of my inner eye. It's smile that cannot be from this world. But describe it, it seems impossible. The words are not forming. My mouth cannot speak them. Can't let them echo through our air. Perhaps because I suspect that they could lure it here. She said with a shiver. It's alright, you don't have to be afraid. It was all a mirage. I tried to calm her down, but all of us knew that those were just empty words. The men around me shook as well, pale looking to the ground, trying not to think about the being that we had been close to the day before. The woman was still crying. The cup had slipped from her hands and fell. Her voice had grown very quiet, and she muttered, it had gotten close, and was it just smiling at me? What are you? I wanted to know, completely disturbed. But it just looked at me, its lips pressed together and said, I am God. The words left its mouth as if they were obvious, but they ripped away every last shred of calm from my mind. That is not possible, I cried. It continued looking at me, not changing its expression. No, I am not God. I am the witness. It corrected itself, almost sounding pleased. Witness? A witness of what? I asked. A witness of their arrival, their deeds, it answered. The dream faded and I awoke, covered in sweat. When she had repeated the entity's words, it was as if I could hear them in the howling of the winds, in the rustling of the bushes, 
and even deep within the core of my soul. Everyone else might have found them silly, but our little group was shaken to the bones. We considered that the woman could be lying to us, that there was another explanation, but there was none. Time passed and we sat in silence, until someone spoke up. We should get back to the station. This is futile. We just say that the village was burned down and that there were no survivors. That isn't a complete lie. No, it might be better to... Another one started, but he was suddenly interrupted. The winds had started to wheeze louder, and the howling sounds of predatory animals soon joined in. My throat got dry, and I sank to the ground trying to breathe. Some others had already fainted or crawled across the gravel. The last horses went mad and got free, running wildly into the distance, away from our camp. And then came the cold. It felt like freezing up from the inside, as if my veins were slowly shrinking, making me an easy target in the Siberian wilderness, the feeling of pure panic. I struggled to get up. Two others had managed to get on their feet as well and searched the area for signs of danger. I spotted the woman lying on the ground. It is coming, she whispered. We have to leave now. Go. One of the others screamed and started to run, away into the forest behind us. Those trees looked like a wall of protection against the danger of death and madness. We had to hide, get to safety. Many were already gone and fainted. We had to leave them behind. What would them slowing us down help anyone? Together with another man who looked at me with determination, I moved towards the forest. All who were still standing did the same. They jumped into those trees away from the hellish hill, and I prepared to follow them, when suddenly a hand got a hold of my wrist. I almost fainted out of fear, when I heard a desperate voice calling for me. No, not that way. That is where it is coming from. I froze and looked back. The woman was holding me in place. She must have gotten up and run over to me, her eyes full of determination. Look at the fields beyond the hill. There is nothing. We should be able to see it already if it was coming from there. She pointed at the grassy hills opposite of the trees. Two others awoke from their petrification and got up. Then we have to go there to those hills. Run away from the trees. They must have heard her words as well. I did not hesitate for long, and soon the four of us were darting across the brown plains onwards, not looking back, not listening to the terrible screams coming from behind us, giving us more reason to sprint faster. I do not know how far we had gotten, because as we had left the hills behind, there was another forest waiting for us, with leafless trees and dead shrubs. Without a doubt, we were lost but we also were alive. Exhausted, we dropped down next to a little pond that was sparkling in the midday sun. We hadn't managed to take any rations or water with us, as all of our instincts had made us escape in blind panic. The water from the pond tasted bad and sour, but it was more than nothing. 
I could not believe that only four people had escaped with their lives. The woman probed the horizon with her gaze, looking for the entity that was in all likeliness still following us. How did it get into the woods? Wasn't it approaching from the other direction, from the village? I finally asked. I do not know, and who would? The woman said. Probably no human. What is your name, anyway? Daria. Just Daria. She introduced herself. We others gave our names as well. How on earth will we get back to the station now? The question echoed back from the trees, almost mockingly. I know a little bit about the area. Where exactly are you from? Daria asked. When we described the location of our base, she seemed to have a rough idea about where to go. That was the first thing in a long time that brought us relief. Perhaps there was a way out of this place. After a short break, we made our way into the forest and hoped that the station was in that direction. But was it safe there? And what did that being even want? Why did it kill our kind? I had to remember the other things that I had seen, the things in the depths of Station 13 itself, and doubts about the nature of our world pierced my mind again. The ground was full of thistles and other ugly plants, the flowers looking rotten, old, and dead. Stones blocked our way countless times, and when evening finally came, fear crept back into us. What if it was still behind us? What if it was still closing in on us? It had to be faster than us. What had just cut us off? We rested at a gloomy clearing and felt that Station 13 was close. Perhaps only another day's walk away. After some discussion, we decided to stay and gather some more strength to finish our journey on the next day. That way, we could at least start to run again in case it got close to us once more. We drew lots and determined the order of people guarding our little camp. A fire was out of the question, even though we all knew deep down that it would find us anyway, if it so choose. Dinner had only consisted of berries and a little river had provided us with fresh water. I was the first one on guard duty, soon being the only one of us left awake, staring off into the darkness. The air was unnaturally arid and felt strangely spent, or was I imagining things? My eyes had slowly gotten used to the dark, and I was able to see the shapes of the bushes and trees around us. The wind was blowing coldly around my body, and the air was filled with the chirping and humming of insects. But had there not just been a hand between the trees? No, I must have been mistaken. I got sick, but I had to pull myself together. The bushes were rustling, evil and foreboding. What if it suddenly broke through? What would I do? Could anything even be done? Or would we die, squashed like bugs? I imagined hearing high-pitched laughter in the distance. Or was it just the wind? Was it in the end just the wind? Did the air not taste strangely acidic, sour? Now it was gone. Or had the taste never been there in the first place? Were not creatures sneaking through those bushes, gaping, lurking? 
Did not the shadows dance around strangely over there? I hear a loud thumping noise like a big drum. My heart beat. Soon I buried my face in my hands. Time passed slower and slower. Again and again, I imagined hearing or seeing things in the dark, smelling or tasting something in the air, but nothing happened. Finally, my time was up and another man took my place as a guard. I slept away faster than I would have expected. A scream woke me up. I rose from the ground, looking around in confusion. It had come from Daria. She had awoken in tears. What happened? I asked, fearfully. I did not feel its presence, but maybe it was hiding. Another dream. I was in this forest, deep inside this forest, somewhere. It was brighter than here, a lot brighter. But perhaps I was just seeing differently than with my normal eyes. I ran through trees, as dead as these, and soon I noticed the white dust hovering close to the ground of the forest. And then it rose from the dust, as if it was breathing through the surface of an ocean. This entity, the witness. It looked exactly like the last time, smiling this terrible smile looking at me from half-dead eyes. Why are you following us? I asked in desperation. It didn't move. I thought that it hadn't hurt me, but then it made a step towards me. I need you. I need substance to walk this earth. It said with no emotion in its voice and its strangely bent lips. What do you mean, substance? The carcasses at the place of arrival. The creatures running into the forest into me. I emerged from their dust. I own their substance. Carried by the winds, I am from you. I see your race. Without purpose in this cosmos, a cosmos that reaches farther than you will ever get. Without fate and a dark sea of blackness, made as cattle, ending as cattle, I testify. It took another step. I wanted to flee, but I knew that it was futile. And then suddenly, it turned around and walked away from me towards all the dust. Slowly, parts of its body crumbled off, almost like a sandcastle in a storm. I know where the others are. I have to bring them the glad tidings. What tidings? What are you talking about? I screamed, but it already fell apart and disintegrated into the white dust that it had been born from. After that, I woke up. Was it heading for us? Is it coming? I asked. No, it went the other way. I think that we might be safe for now. When I digested those words, I started to panic. It's heading for the station. It's heading for the station. We have to warn them. It's too late. It's faster than us, Daria said quietly. The world turned gray and meaningless when I realized that she was right. What if the Vian had reached civilization, cities? Would it end us all? What did it even want? Did it want anything at all? I was devastated. We would soon reach the station ourselves and see what the entity had done. Despite the danger, that was the only place where we might be able to find any help at all. And two days later, around noon, we finally got back to Station 13. Sweaty and hurt by thorns, we broke through the final bushes, 
let our gazes wander and finally froze in terror and disguised. Death had come and visited the station. White dust was lying everywhere, covered the concrete, the grass, and clothes. Nobody had survived. Even the dogs in their cages had been turned to heaps of dust, slowly being blown away by the winds. It appeared as if some people had tried to escape with jeeps, but they didn't come far. The alarm systems were still howling. We made our way into the main building, but no one was left inside either. Just warning lights flashing bright through cold corridors of concrete. We were still full of panic and adrenaline. Was it still here? In these corridors? No, probably not. We would have noticed. Would have felt it by now. Nonetheless, again and again I imagined seeing shadows flickering in the corners of my eyes. Perhaps it was still here after all. Would it grow out of the dust and disintegrate us as well? My thoughts were trailing off when we got into the command center. The walls inside were covered in deep scratches and dust. I had to inform my superiors of the situation. The KGB, somebody. They had to close off this area. I quickly grabbed the phone and dialed the number of the central station in Moscow. What is happening over there, Station 13? Firstly this, message, and then radio silence. What experiments did you do exactly? Someone answered the phone, furiously shouting at me. But when I had made my report and given them my identification, they fell silent. Until today, I do not know whether we had led the entity to Station 13, or if it had already been headed there. I also do not know what happened to the creature after the attack. Had it reached its goal and just faded away? Or was it still wandering across the Siberian wastelands, while draining the life from the surrounding environment? Station 13 was given up. The loss of nearly all people stationed there was covered up with the greatest efforts, and was counted as one of the biggest failures of scientists inside the Soviet Union. Daria and the other two had fled into the woods as they feared being buried together, with the other information on the incident. I did not tell on them, and reported that I was the only one surviving the terror. My official statement was full of lies, but I think they knew I didn't care. I am now 75 and hope that, at the end of my life, this story will finally get out to people. I sat on it long enough. Some helicopters were sent to the village, but neither an impact crater nor white dust were ever found. The houses had just disappeared as if they had never existed in the first place. And almost nobody had ever heard the message that had been sent by Station 13 to the central station before it went silent. The message that caused the young woman who received it to have a psychotic breakdown. The message I've heard only once. The humming, the wheezing and the voice. The voice that sounded neither young nor old, neither male nor female. The voice that spoke calmly and quietly, and said, I am witness. I have witnessed their arrival. I took part in an experiment funded by a billionaire. I wish I hadn't. 
Written by Bleep Lube, 1990. Okay, so I'll start off by saying that I'm not asking for anyone to feel sorry for me. And I'm not asking for anyone's help with the situation that I got myself into. I just know that the users on this forum have an open mind about inexplicable things that happen in dark corners of the world. And I really just need to say my piece. Explain what happened to me before I'm gone from this world or whatever. So, I'm an addict. A junkie. I guess in some ways it feels like there's a lot more to say, but that probably tells you everything you need to know about me. I could talk about the struggles that I faced, about growing up poor and raised by a single mother, moving from one crappy apartment to another, always wearing clothes from the discount bin at Salvation Army, etc, etc. But the truth is, I know I had it a lot better than many people. My mom may have sometimes struggled to take care of all of us, but she tried really hard and she did a pretty good job at keeping a roof over our heads and food on the plates. She was nothing but supportive of me and my siblings too. Until you know, I did the thing that addicts do, and I drove them all away. Eroded even the seemingly unlimited support that people will give to someone that they love who is struggling. I got a prescription for a shoulder injury I received from playing IM basketball in college, and from there, it was like falling off a cliff. Instead of graduating from college, I quickly graduated from opioids to heroin, and pretty quickly, balancing even a low-wage retail job with my need to be high as much as possible became untenable. After my third failed attempt at rehab, when mom called me stealing from her purse again. She finally listened to my siblings and told me that she loved me, but that I couldn't stay with her anymore. I know how hard it was for her to say that. I could tell the conversation we had was one that she had rehearsed many times before in her head. I didn't blame her. I still don't. I put that poor woman through the worst and saw her heartbreak anew every time I backslid every time she would come home to find something new missing from the apartment and me on the couch at Catatonic. And my siblings had already become familiar with the way things seemed to go missing when I stayed with them. How many times could I break the promise that, this time, things were different? So when she finally kicked me out, I packed up, bought a Greyhound bus ticket with the money mom had pressed into my hand with trembling fingers and traded in the cold winters with the wind coming off the lake in dreary Chicago for the temperate promise of San Francisco. I thought that San Francisco would be a better spot for me versus Chicago, but I found instead that it was much like being homeless anywhere else, only with way more hills. When we first started seeing the advertisements posted on flyers near our ever-rotating network of homeless camps, we shrugged them off as a joke or a prank. However, the flyers continued to dog our footsteps as weary blue-clad officers periodically drove us out of our settlements. I saw the small, neatly spaced, typewritten words lie in the dirty brown grass beneath freeway overpasses as the cars shot by overhead become caught in the thick undergrowth and tucked away portions of public parks. 
Men slowly yellow in the sun, tattooed telephone poles near abandoned office parks. Wanted male subjects ages 21 to 35 to participate in a study founded by the Colin Spears Foundation. Pay $500 per session, $1,000 upon completion. Location Interested persons may come to 1300 Menlark Avenue, Suite 300, between the hours of 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. After people who actually took up the tourist offer on the flyer started returning with crisp green bills, bills which were quickly transformed as if via alchemy into little baggies of brown tar and bliss, we began to take the offer a little more seriously. Maybe Colin Spears, the reclusive tech billionaire who had recently relocated to the Bay Area, really was behind these flyers. It was weird, but billionaires were always doing weird stuff. Was this any weirder than Dogecoin or having a yacht for your yacht? Soon, the line at the nondescript office suite on Menlark Avenue regularly stretched around the corner as the great unwatched masses of San Francisco waited impatiently a twitching, raggedy chorus of expectation. It's only looking back in retrospect that I realize how many of those who were called back for his second or third appointments stopped showing up in the usual spots, how they dropped off the face of the earth. Once we saw that the money on offer was real, heard that all you had to do was go answer some weird questions, we were in. Even after what had happened to Raccoon, Raccoon, who earned his nom de guerre by being really good at finding stuff in rich people's trash, was one of the first to start going to the address listed on the flyers. He was also one of the few who got called back for a third appointment. A few days after, he had a really bad trip and OD'd. It was pretty freaky stuff. He was crying, yelling, saying that he couldn't remember who he was, that he thought he was somebody else. Some other mind was taking over his. We kind of laughed it off. He had been farming and shooting up, so we thought it was just a bad trap. Next day, he was dead. He had scratched his own eyes out and written something on the ground in his blood. It had run and we couldn't really make it out. But I could see the not me written over and over in the cracked pavement. But it's not like it was that unusual for people to come and go without warning, or even to OD in horrible ways. The only constant within our peculiar subculture was inconstancy. The only stability, instability. Besides, it's not like I was exactly all there in those weeks when everyone seemed flush, and the lean times between scores was negligible. I might not have noticed if everybody in the world but me disappeared when I was fully gone. That was the beauty of getting high, and why I always came back after every solemn promise I made to myself and to others. When I was well and truly loaded, nothing mattered. That silence of the constant buzz of worry, of the in-your-headiness of it all, that was something I simply couldn't give up. I think the closest experience I could compare it to would be a memory I have of being very young, of sitting in my reading nook watching the sun come down over the ocean, reading as always, and hearing the low hum of my parents' conversation in the next room, knowing that 
Wait, the heck? I never lived in a house like that. I don't have a reading nook. That's not my memory. Crap, it's already starting. I have less time than I thought. Okay, so it started. It's happening already. That's fine, it's cool. I knew this was coming. I... I think it's already affecting my behavior. The way I'm sitting feels different somehow. The way I move is altered. And looking back over what I've wrote so far, I don't write like that. It sounds like some pretentious wannabe getting way too into the New Yorker or something. Anyway, I guess I'd better move a little faster on this. When I arrived at 1300 Menlark Avenue for the first appointment, I was coming down pretty hard. Jason, who I had met my first week in San Fran and had been sharing a tent with for the past few weeks, had gone the week before and had been invited to return. We had already burned through the money that he had gotten from his first appointment, and I could feel the calm mellow of my high peeling away on the edges like fading wallpaper, the ugly filter of reality clawing its way in. Jason was feeling it too, I could tell. His eyes were red at the corners, and he was chewing his fingernails and bouncing on his toes, his scuffed and stained new balances creasing and straightening in time with his movements. By the time the line had shortened and we were at the door of the small office, tucked unobtrusively among the scattered mix of residential homes, law offices, and other businesses along the steep incline of Menlark Avenue, the sun had sunk low in the sky. Its amber rays filtered through the narrow spaces between buildings, smeared the opaque glass door red. The door was warm to the touch as I pulled it open. Upon the nod from the young woman in white, standing at the entrance, with a clipboard and a severe expression. Inside was a small waiting room, with several office chairs seated around a scuffed wooden table, covered in out-of-date magazines. Jason and I sat down next to each other, and we waited. The shine was well and truly off my buzz now, and it felt like the world was covered in a thin layer of scum and grime. Neither of us felt like talking. Jason was called first and rose slowly, flashing me a wary two-fingered peace sign on his way to the door, leading further into the office. The loud, harsh note that sounded as he was buzzed through the double doors reverberated through my head, increasing my oncoming headache maddeningly. I watched the sunlit retreat across the carpet toward the window, as if eager to escape the room. While I waited for my turn, my headache and mood growing steadily worse. When my name was finally called, I walked through the double doors separating the interior of the building from the waiting room and followed yet another severe-looking woman dressed in white down a brightly lit corridor that smelled strongly of antiseptic. I was led into a small room stuffed with medical equipment, where a hairy-looking man, wearing a stethoscope, began taking my vitals in a hurried, detached manner that suggested he had been performing the same task all day and was already thinking of the first fizz and taste of that beer waiting for him at home. After a series of pokes, prods, and measurements, the doctor picked up a clipboard and began rattling off a series of increasingly intrusive questions in a staccato tone. 
Do you have any family history of high blood pressure, diabetes, or testicular cancer? No. Any allergies to common anesthesia? No. Have you traveled outside of the United States within the past six months? Nope. Do you have a family history of mental disorders, including but not limited to schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or depression? Um, I don't think so. Are you now or have you been a habitual or casual user of nicotine products, including but not limited to cigarettes, e-cigarettes, or chewable tobacco? Uh, I paused, trying to calculate what answer was most likely to allow me to advance to further appointments while also remaining plausible. Had they been watching me in line? Jason and I had bummed a couple cigarettes while we had waited. As if sensing the calculations behind my long pause, the doctor sighed and pinched his nose as though my inept attempts at duplicity caused him physical pain. Mr. Brunald, the blood samples and other biometrics I have taken will give me all the answers I seek regarding your health practices, or lack thereof as the case may be. Answering truthfully now will merely facilitate the process. Answering untruthfully can result in a breach of contract and necessitate a disengorgement of funds dispersed. And looking up at me and apparently registering incomprehension, he tried again. If you lie, no money. Understand? I nodded. Yes, I am a habitual user. Are you now or have you ever been a habitual or casual user of alcohol products? Uh, yes, habitual. Are you now or have you ever been a habitual or casual user of cannabis and cannaboid products, whether ingested or inhaled? Habitual. Are you now or have you ever been a habitual or casual user of heroin or synthetic heroin products? Habitual. I said almost instinctively, pulling these sleeves down over my arms. Are you now or have you been? Sir, I interrupted hesitantly. Yes, Mr. Brunault, said the doctor, looking up at me impatiently. Man, might save time if you just put me down as habitual for everything you have on there. Ah, he said, making some notes in his notepad. Very well, Mr. Brunault. Let's move on. The questions continued, becoming even more particular and more bizarre. I was asked questions ranging from my favorite breakfast cereal, my mean IQ score, my highest education level, my worst fear, and earliest memory of being afraid. At the end, the doctor merely said, That's all. Thank you, Mr. Brunault. You may proceed to processing. Did I pass? I asked. Do I get my money? Can I come back for the second 500? The doctor snorted. You passed with flying colors, Mr. Brunault. Go get your cookie and again pointed to the door. On my way to the exit, I took a wrong turn and found myself in a narrow corridor along with several offices that were arranged. I began to turn, but heard raised voices coming from within one of the offices. Think of your oath for Christ's sakes, Andrew. This isn't medicine, it's lunacy. The quieter voice murmured something in return, and the angry voice exploded. Oh, informed consent, F off. Nothing can consent to this. Before I could move closer to eavesdrop, the door flew open and hit the wall with a dull bang. 
A man in a white coat with flushed cheeks rushed past me. He stopped a few paces past me and looked back. You want my advice, son? Don't come back to this place. Save whatever brain cells you have left and stay away from here. And then he turned and was gone with a flap of his white coat turning the corner. A friendly looking gentleman in a suit was at my side. Sorry about that, sir. He said in a warm voice. Just a disgruntled former employee. Pay him no mind. I was guided to the door and was directed to a small cubicle, where yet another indistinguishable icy-looking woman in white sat behind a protective plastic barrier, with a small cutout for exchanging items. She raised her eyebrow at me. Name? Arthur Brunault. I heard the click of a keyboard and a small whir. She handed me a square laminated card atop a small white envelope. The card contained a date and an address. Return at this date and time to this address for your second appointment. She recited in a practice cadence. I saw tantalizing green edges faintly revealed at the corners of the envelope and felt I could already feel the first blissful rush as it was entering my bloodstream. I don't know if she said anything else because I clutched the envelope to my chest and I rushed out of the door, half afraid that I would hear feet pounding after me. Then muscle-bound, men in white uniforms would haul me back inside, telling me that they knew I had lied when I said my favorite cereal was Lucky Charms and not kicks. Several days, maybe weeks later, I woke up on the grass of a public park, the bay stretching out before me in a haze of blue. I peeled my eyes open, feeling the thin line of gum-like substance keeping them glued shut break with a small snap. I was covered in a fine mist of dew, and I felt like crap. A mother with two young children was hurrying by, studiously not looking at me. I realized absentmindedly that the front of my shirt was caked with vomit. Mine, I hoped. My heroin was gone, my money also. Feeling in my pockets hoping without justification and that I might have forgotten a small gram bag somewhere. I pulled out the laminated card that I had received and I stared at it dumbly. Slowly, as if a great industrial machine that was long misused and caked with the residue of years of operations coming to my life, my thoughts began to turn. The appointment. The experiment. Free money. More age. I got shakily to my feet and I read the card again. I checked my phone. The date was today. A feeling as if I had some personal, immoral demigod who had made it his focus to ensure that I did not go through withdrawal. I shouldered my bag and began stumbling to the west of town where the address was located. On the long walk as I, to my immense regret, began to slowly become less high. I realized clearly that I had not seen Jason since his third appointment. What an ass, I thought. He was probably holed up somewhere with his money, making sure that he didn't have to share any with me. Okay, so at this point, you're probably thinking whatever happened to me, I deserve it. And yeah, there were a lot of red flags. But what can I say? If I was good at weighing risk and rewards, I wouldn't have wound up living out of a tent signing up for random medical experiments to feed my drug addiction. Crap, I've seen people do a lot sketchier things for a lot less. 
The second appointment was even odder than the first. It took place in a small room with white walls, sparsely furnished with a low-slung couch facing two chairs. A large glass mirror took up the length of one wall, and two doctors briskly attached a number of small circular nodes around my head, the long wires snaking back to an opaque white box with a screen that displayed a series of fluctuating lines and waves. The questioning began again, intermixed with odd tasks such as being asked to smell and describe a range of objects and foods from peanut butter to a grease-soaked oil dip. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that the display, which previously had shown only a jumble of lines, was assembling into ever more complex patterns of dots and connecting figurations. The test continued for what felt like hours until a small beep sounded from the machine, and words, Nero Reconstruction Complete, flashed over the screen. The doctors stood up in unison. Thank you for your time, Mr. Brunault. A representative will be in shortly to describe the terms of your agreement. Wait, did I... do I get my money? I asked, feeling pathetic, but unable to control myself. I could feel raw panic rising in me. Without money, I would have no way of scoring, and I could feel the first symptoms of withdrawal kicking in already. The doctors didn't respond and merely shut the door behind as they left. After an interminable amount of time, during which I felt like I could physically feel the last residual amount of heroin seeping from me as a dull pain came crawling in, a young man with an expensive looking haircut that matched his expensive looking suit walked in. Good evening, Mr. Brunault, and I'm sorry to keep you waiting. We won't waste any more of your time. Here is the contractual agreement, liability waiver, and statement of soundness of mind. As he spoke, the man laid several heavy forms down on the table and stepped back. Bending over, I looked blearily at them. The words, full of dense legalese, swam before me. What? My mouth was dry and the words came out in a weak croak. I tried again. What is this? Mr. Brunault, I cannot represent to you the contents of the terms of agreement. I am attained by and represent the foundation. And as such, any material statements of fact made to you would be a conflict of interest and a violation of California Code of Ethics Section 9A3. If you do not wish to accept the terms and conditions, you are certainly free to leave. Shrugging, I bent down and began initialing the pages, heavily marked by color-coded sticky notes. I didn't even attempt to read the forms. I was injecting myself daily with foreign substances. What did I care what these doctors wanted to do with me? Almost despite myself, I caught snatches of puzzling phrases as I initialed and signed. Hereby do agree and consent to the aforementioned neural construction transfer as divided in Section 7i v. Agree to waive any and all individual identity rights to cognitive functioning, as those terms are described in Appendix J to Section 408 of this form. Understand the proprietary nature of this product, May. I just wanted this to be over so I could get my money and be on my way. I felt sore all over and I could feel the chills coming on. 
At one point, I glanced up and saw the young attorney staring down at me intensely, his eyes cold under the fluorescent light, like a hawk watching its prey struggle in a trap. When I had finished signing, I was directed to a small room where I received another envelope of cash. The next few weeks were something of a blur. I remember being picked up by a courier car, deposited outside of town at a large industrial medical building, signing more forms, being placed in some type of weird floating tub with wires snaking all over my head. More tests, more machines that beeped and whirred. It all passed in a haze. The money kept coming and I didn't ask questions. I was too high to formulate anything passing for a coherent thought really. But now, now the money is gone and something is very wrong. I keep having flashes of memories that don't belong to me. Looking out the window of a private plane and seeing the lights of a city I've never been to spread out beneath me. The taste of gin and mint while waves crash against the shore below. The feel of the keys of my first piano beneath my fingers. No, none of these memories are mine. Snowball fights on dirty residential streets while the cold wind of Lake Michigan bit through our winter clothing. The hum of the radiator in our two-bedroom ranch house. Watching a rainstorm turn the yellowed grass outside my window dark with churned mud. The first time I tried drugs and finally felt the constant buzz in my mind quiet. These are my memories, not those other ones. I am Colin. My name is Colin. I grew up in Chicago. I had a mother who read to me every night, no matter how tired she was, even after working back-to-back -back shifts at the Dollar General. I used to ride my bike to school and pretend that I was a cowboy. Arthur. My name is Arthur. Brewster. Broughtist. Crap. What the heck? I can't remember my own name. What is happening to me? I feel like my brain is splitting in two. I think I'm just going to lay down and rest my eyes for a bit. I'll post more later when I feel better. My grandpa was a janitor for the CIA. Written by Chowder Report. I'll be honest. I'm not sure how to start this story off. And the title is probably what made you click on this. After all, how scary could my grandfather being a janitor be? But that isn't what this story is about. This is about my grandfather, who uncovered something big during his time as a custodian at a government facility near Seattle, Washington. I guess that's where we'll start off. My grandpa started working at this facility after the Korean War. It was 1954, and he was 24 years old with no life experience other than war. So, he became a custodian. He didn't mind the work and he was good at it, so he stayed working there. He didn't retire until 1997, at the age of 67. Now, I didn't see very much of my grandpa growing up, mostly because he had gone off to live in the middle of nowhere. My dad never told me why. He's 86 now, 
He outlived his only son, with my dad passing away in 2014 of a respiratory issue. I've seen him a couple times. He was at my father's funeral. He apologized for not being around when I was a kid. I told him that I didn't mind. But that's how I got back in touch with him. After my dad's funeral, we stayed in touch. He invited me out to stay at his cabin on McConaughey Lake in Nebraska. 102 people live near the lake. That's it. I accepted. I planned to stay with the old man for a little less than a week before returning back home. I was up in Boston at the time, so the flight down wasn't terrible. I flew into Omaha and then had to drive the rest of the way out to this cabin. When I arrived, it actually looked sort of nice. Not many trees, but the house itself was pretty nice. Strange because I didn't think he made that much money. A two-story cabin with a porch and a deck. He had an above-ground pool in the back. It was actually kind of awesome. Anyway, although I was impressed by the house itself, it really was my grandpa who was the best part. I forgot how cool he was, but he was a super badass in Korea. Came home and got a job with the CIA. Well, kind of. He was a janitor or whatever. It was a good job. He was a lifelong outdoorsman. He had all sorts of stuffed fish and animals in his house. It's creepy when it's too much, but these were actually pretty cool. But anyway, he greeted me. He was old. So, he was a little bit slower. I had trouble on steps and stuff, so I met him on his deck. He was really excited that I was there. He brought me inside and gave me a proper tour of the place. He told me that he was going to grow steaks for dinner and then we could do whatever. And it honestly sounded great. I just wanted to be around the guy that I hadn't had a grandfatherly experience. The first three days of being in Nebraska were great. We went fishing, not in the lake, but in a pond that he knew nearby. He said it was a better spot than the popular local ones. But the fourth day was odd. It started like the others. And Grandpa had made me breakfast, which was the same as every other day, and bacon and eggs. He's a man of tradition. But then he told me that he had to do something, and so he laughed. He hadn't laughed any of the other days, but whatever, I'm sure he was busy. So I just went about my day. About four hours later, he still wasn't back. I was bored, so I figured I would take a ride into town and go into some of these stores to pick up a souvenir to take home. I took the keys to his pickup truck. My rental was still there, but he had two trucks, and I really wanted to get into the spirit of Nebraska. The truck bed was locked. I was just going to see what was in there, and the top of it was secured on tightly. I tried to unlock it with the actual key, you know, like all cars work. But the key didn't work. Whatever. There were no stores anyway. I guess that explained Grandpa telling me he ordered everything he owned on the internet, or he had made it himself. When I was driving home, I actually saw another car. A pickup truck on this dirt road. I was excited, but I just kept on motoring on. A little ways down the road, and I was making this really sharp turn. 
and it looks like you're driving into nothing and then there's just a turn. Well anyway, the guy rear-ended me. I hopped out and talked about him. He said that he knew my grandpa and that it wouldn't be a problem. I took down his information on a business card that was in the truck. He drove off and I went to look at the damage again. It really wasn't bad. Well, except for the lock on at the truck bed. It was totally busted open. It was locked for a reason. I shouldn't look at this. It's not mine. It's not right. That's what I was thinking. But I opened the back and I slid the top off. Inside were two crates of files. The top two labeled Radar Questioning 4 and Roswell Files. Also on the bed was a bag. I unzipped it to find it was filled with stacks of $100 bills. None of that grabbed my attention as much as the guns. So many guns. There were enough guns in there to make a marine blush. Why would he need all of them? And some of the guns just weren't for hunting. It was a good assortment of rifles, handguns, shotguns. But next to all of this was another duffel bag. I unzipped it and inside was a 22 Browning machine gun. Littered around the bed were also dozens and dozens of ammo boxes. I closed the bag with the gun, closed the bag with the money, and just stopped to think for a second. I didn't read the files. I wanted to, but he could already be back at the house and I didn't want to take any extra time, so I put the lid back on the bed and I closed it up. The lock was broken. I drove home and parked it. And he was already back. I walked inside and he had brought inside one of his packages and was cutting it open. You took the truck. His voice was kind. The voice of an old man, so sort of weak and raspy. But kind and I loved hearing him talk. Yeah, just into Lemoyne to see if there was anything but it doesn't look like much. He laughed. There are 102 people here. They're not setting up much of anything. Grandpa, I should tell you that there is an accident. That really sharp turn we took to get to the fishing spot. I was taking that and one of the guys that lived close to you rear-ended the truck. He said you guys had settled something similar before, but I took his information down just to be safe. I handed him the restaurant business card that I had written the information on to my grandpa. That's Wade Bresson. I knew his dad too. Good family, no problem. Was anything damaged? I mean, is the truck okay? Yeah, the truck's fine. Just the lock in the truck bed got busted. That's the only thing. I turned to look at his response and his face had turned to pale white. Did you open the bed? I nodded yes. I don't like that you invaded my privacy, but I feel like I should explain what's in there. That's my apocalypse stuff, he sighed. What? I laughed at his explanation. We all have guilty pleasures and mine is doomsday prepping. Those guns are for fighting people who might want what's mine. And the files are recycled. What's written on them isn't what's in them. Those files have plans for farms or traps. 
I guess I knew a lot of Midwesterners liked doomsday prepping, but to hear from Grandpa was strange. But I just accepted it. Told him that it was kind of interesting, and that was the end of that. But something still didn't feel right. But I wasn't going to argue with the guy. He cooked dinner, and I was in bed by 10 o'clock. He went to sleep pretty early. That night, as I was falling asleep, the box of files in that truck just kept chewing at me. So, I got up and walked outside to check on it. As I go outside, I could hear a rustling coming from the cars. I pulled out my phone flashlight and began walking over. I figured it was just an animal, but as I got over to it, it was Grandpa cleaning everything out of the back of the car. The guns, the files, all of it. He was loading everything into the back of his other truck. He saw me. Crap, is all I could think. Uh, hey Grandpa, I heard something out here, but I guess it's just you. Why are you doing this now? I was now very suspicious of him, but I couldn't let on. But what was I going to say to him? I know something's weird. I'm going to take the truck into town to get it fixed. I'm just cleaning it out. Who cleans their truck out at 11 o'clock at night? I nodded, but I didn't say anything. I just turned back, going into the house. I knew something was wrong. I could feel it. Was my grandpa doing something bad? Was that why he was so reclusive? Or was I being dumb and he really was just a good-intentioned old man with a few strange hobbies? I went back to bed. I woke up at about 4 in the morning to the sound of someone talking into the phone. It was my grandpa in the living room. I cracked my door open just slightly so I could hear what he was saying. He knows something's wrong. He saw the stuff in my truck. No, I don't think he looked at the files. Well, we're going hunting tomorrow so I can sort it out then. Yeah, I'll call you after. Bye. He hung up the phone and I heard him start to walk towards his room, which was directly across the hallway from mine. I jumped back into my bed, pulled the covers over myself and pretended to be fast asleep. I heard him enter my room, the creak of my door being pushed open and a few steps across the floor. He must have been standing right at the end of my bed staring at me. Twenty minutes passed and I heard nothing. No footsteps walking away. Not the door closing, nothing. I figured he had walked out and just had not made that much of a sound, but I was far too scared to look. The thought of this man, who I believed to be hiding a secret from me, just standing over me, looming over me, it was unsettling, to say the least. But eventually, my fake sleep turned into real sleep. I'm really not sure how, I was terrified the entire time. But when I woke up, my door was closed. If he would have left, I would have heard it. He was there the entire time. This sent a chill up my spine. Why had he done that? Why would he watch me do nothing but sleep for so long? Surely, there had to be a perfectly reasonable explanation for it. When I went into the kitchen... He was holding one of his rifles. 
I step back. Well, this is it. I'm about to be offed by my own grandfather. That was all I could think. Oh, hey, Jimbo. Grab a rifle out of the safe and get in the truck. We're gonna go bag some whitetails. I smiled at him. A disingenuous smile, but I was praying he would be convinced I knew nothing. Yeah, sounds great, Grandpa. I walked to the basement where his safe was open. Even more guns sat inside. His collection was crazy. I grabbed one of the rifles and checked that it was loaded. And it was. I ascended the stairs where my grandfather stood with a sweet smile on his face. His rifle slung over his back. He was wearing a whole hunting outfit. Vest, boots, jeans, hat, glasses. I mean, he was really ready. And we drove out into the middle of nowhere. The drive wasn't that long, but it felt like forever. Every time I looked away from him, I felt an eerie sense that I was being watched. But every time I looked back, he was staring perfectly forward at the road ahead. Eventually, we had reached the spot that he had mentioned previously. Said that there were lots of deer around. We walked into the wilderness for a few minutes. Me in front of him, and we just followed the trail. But that was until we came upon a cave. It was a straight drop about 20 feet down. Grandpa, what cave is... I heard him cocking his rifle. I turned around, only to see him aiming the gun at me. In a quick motion, I lifted my own rifle. We both stood silent. Both guns pointed at one another. I broke the silence. What is going on? He shook his head. He looked conflicted like he was unsure what he was going to do. James, I'm not a janitor. I cleaned up messes for the CIA, but it wasn't trash. My job was to cover up anomalies caused by ultra-terrestrial beings. That's where the money came from. That's what those files are for. BS, no way. There's no way the meek old man in front of me used to hunt aliens. So what? You're the men in black. He shook his head. They handle extraterrestrials. Me and my division were ultra-terrestrial. I shook my head. What does that even mean? He seemed upset that I had cursed him. It means that the anomalies I cleaned up were caused by beings from another place. A place where the rules of existence are different, and when these things bleed into our world, well, they cause problems. I wasn't satisfied with that answer. Did my dad know? My dad never liked his father. I wanted to know if this is why. Of course he did. Why do you think he didn't want me near you? I was dangerous. I couldn't help but chuckle. We're dangerous. You're pointing a gun at me, Grandpa. He sighed. I'm sorry, James. He lifted his rifle, so it was in line with my head. I pulled the trigger first, but I was met with a disheartening click. I removed the firing pins from all my other guns. In that moment of my confusion, he pulled the trigger. The bullet cut through my side, knocking me backwards. I plummeted. I felt my back break as I hit the stone floor of this cave. The sounds I made, begging my grandfather for help. 
but I heard his boots start to walk back down the trail. Looking around me, I could see the completely decomposed remains of at least four people. That's how many skulls I saw. From the darkness of the cave, I could hear the growling of a monster grow stronger and louder, and in that moment, I knew where my grandfather had moved to, McConaughey Lake. I wrote that in 2016. I don't remember what happened next, but I woke up in Arizona, a mile outside of Phoenix. I couldn't move. The sun scorched my skin. And local police had found me, and they had brought me to a hospital where I spent the next eight months. I was paralyzed from the waist down because of the incident, and I haven't seen my grandfather for two years. When in 2018, he came to me. But that's a story for a different time. I'm sure this is an unsatisfactory ending for most of you, but hopefully, my next story can shed more light on exactly what was in the cave and what kind of things my grandfather was dealing with during his time in the CIA. Lock your doors and turn on the lights. The nocturnals are coming. Written by Mr. Mills, 45. The night shift. We all know it, we all dread it, and we all hear about it. Some enjoy it. The peace and quiet of it all. It soothes them. And those people might listen to music, scary stories, or whatever else is available while completing some arbitrary task their boss made up for them. Being a young woman who works as a night custodian in an office building, things can get quite strange, as well as exhausting. And no, there are no strange rules, guidelines, or instructions to follow. No sheets of paper with directions on them that would make anybody quit on the spot. But there is definitely more to my job than meets the eye, and I'm here to tell you all about it. These are the things that happen in this building. Things that I'm sure most people won't believe. Things that actually would send most folks running. It's safe to say a good majority of humans have a fear of the dark. Or at least are hesitant when in dark spaces. Especially when those dark spaces are in unfamiliar locations. Now, while the lack of being able to see anything in front of you is already alarming... It's what's potentially in the dark that we fear. Something that wants to cause us harm or make us suffer in ways that we have no previous conception of. A serial killer. An inhuman beast. Something tall and lanky with no face. The list goes on. But what truly matters is that darkness is the ultimate weapon. Vision is extremely important to humans. If you take away our most important sense, we have a hard time getting by without it, taking the time to adapt to sad circumstances. People who rely on being able to see their whole lives don't want that to suddenly slip away in the blink of an eye. But unfortunately, it does happen. More than we would like. The nocturnals. The darkness is theirs, and they've claimed it. I don't know where they came from or how they began. There isn't a whole lot of information on them to begin with, because most people who get the chance to learn a decent amount ends up becoming one of them. That's right. 
Their red eyes glow brightly, but are still subtle enough to go unseen by someone not paying attention. Their figures are completely pitch black, just like the darkness they choose to reside in. They're not shadows exactly, but I wouldn't call you stupid for thinking they were. They control darkness the more of them there are in a certain area, the more that they can use it, manipulate it, and apply it almost any way they like. They do speak and have voices. They sound mostly like they did when they were still human. Just far more distorted, echoey if you will. They always choose the darkness. And let me tell you right here and now that it will take far more than a simple flashlight to stop them. Especially when they're in a group. Turn on main lights, ceiling lights, high powered lamps. Anything you can to fight it. And only leave your home or places of comfort during the day. Better yet, stay in groups yourself as well. Now should you become engulfed by their powers and snatched up by one of them, you will be added to their ranks and will only seek to carry out their mission. Your human compassion, empathy, and emotions will fade. But something else will replace it. Something far more sinister. A love for the darkness. The urge to spread it. To turn others into the blackened body. Glowing, red-eyed creatures. And that's it. Any semblance of who you once were. Gone, never to return. Forget holy water, crosses, or anything along those lines. They won't help you. I've seen others try. It never ends in their favor. Now, why do I work a job where I'm at risk for pretty much all of this? Well, it's because I kind of have to. For starters, I'm not the only so-called custodian that works in this building. There's four of us. First, there's me, Millie. The job itself came to me once I had completed what I needed for qualifications. A man dressed in a pristine gray suit, aviators on, and his hair slicked back had left an envelope on my doorstep. If he truly didn't want me to see him, then that would have been the case. But I know that he did. And that's why he took his sweet time getting me into the back of a black SUV, parked down the road. The windows tinted as well. I could even see that dang thing was armored, which didn't surprise me considering it was already shady enough up to that point. Furthermore, I picked the envelope up, turned it onto its backside and read a sentence written in black, bold text. Don't call the police, because the police answer to us. It seems like they had thought of everything. I took this as a sign that I had practically no choice but to open it up, as much as I didn't want to. I wasn't very graceful. I simply snapped the fold open, finding what looked to be a printed photo inside. I grip it steady, the temperature of it still warm as I begin to pull it out, letting me know the photo was still fresh and hadn't been around for very long. Once it's separated from the envelope, I swap it around for the blank, white side to the actual contents of the picture. The paper gave off a smell resembling to air freshener, likely for breeze, which was strangely the most odd thing about it. Immediately, my blood freezes when I see the image. I step inside, 
my hand shaking as I put it on the knob to shut my front door. Tears forming in my eyes as I feel my grip on the picture began to slip away. The picture is of my middle-aged mother, restrained in a chair with a gun pointed to her head. Not just a pistol or what you usually expect. No, this one looked military grade. Something a regular person would have a hard time getting their hands on. I notice at the bottom there is something written in white, almost chalk letters. I glance down to take a peek. The words revealing themselves to be from the agency. There was also an address written in the opposite corner. One that told me I must be there exactly a week later or suffer the consequences. So, with no choice, I went. What else was I going to do? If I told anyone she dies, and like they said, the cops answered to them. So that option was out the door. I was slightly off-put when I showed up to what looked to be a generic office building. Something you would see while taking a drive downtown. But this was much more isolated. It was only four floors. A brick exterior with a flat, boring roof and crystal clear windows. But there's a very good reason no one is allowed here once it gets dark. I went in. And a strange woman approached, telling me I was going to be interviewed for one of the open custodian positions. As they suddenly needed it filled. I guess you can infer what that means. But I know it had all been a setup, as I had never applied for a job at this place. Although she did inform me that there would be three others with me, so thank God I wouldn't be the only one. She had one of the higher ranking employees of the building come in and give me some sort of weird, almost dare I say, enhanced flashlight. Like something you would see out of a sci-fi film. Even she herself didn't seem normal. In fact... There wasn't a single blue-collar person in there. They dressed similarly to the guy who had dropped the envelope off at my house. Instead of just one beam of light, there was six. All very bright and made a mining helmet look dim by comparison. When I asked why they were giving it to me, their response was simply, Trust us, you'll need it. And that's pretty much where I am today. Tonight, I'm about to go in for my official 200th shift, meaning I ended up lasting five days longer than the man I had ended up replacing. So, bravo to me, I guess. And despite these circumstances, I did end up making friends with one of the other custodians, Tommy. He wasn't anything to write home about. Well, being completely truthful, none of us are. This agency that hired us probably thinks of us as nothing but guard dogs, which we kind of are. Anyway, Tommy, he's a good man. Maybe not the most exciting, fun, or dangerous guy ever, but he's good and good at his job. I'm pretty sure that that's all they care about. For Tommy, they have his son. I'm even sure that one time he attempted to quit and someone from the agency told him, they would throw his son to one of the creatures that they have caged. So yeah, that's a good enough motivation to be doing this. Nonetheless, I get to the building, go to the supply closet and get my share of the equipment that I need to clean the third floor. Each of us are assigned to our own floor with walkie-talkies for communication purposes. 
I take the elevator up to my designated floor, grab my mop and dip it in the bucket. The slight splash destroys the eerie silence of the room for just a second. The water squelches and spreads these soapy chemicals as I move the mop around with a sort of rhythm. Got two red eyes down here. Tommy calls in from the walkie-talkie, stuttering slightly as he was the newest out of all of us, only being here for about 20 shifts. I pick my walkie up, pressing the button on the side in order to get my response. Use your light, stay still and make sure you're near the lit areas of the floor. Don't do anything stupid, I order him, genuinely concerned for the man's safety. Tommy pauses for a second, nothing but the sound of faint breathing coming from the other end for a moment or two. Okay, yeah, I'm all good. They're starting to retreat. Oh, and in case you're wondering, I'm the only one that actually calls them the Nocturnals. I had seen a post online about it. Something about some guy who had been taken by them. That's what he called them in a post. And I really like the name. It sucks what happened to the guy, though. And lately, there's been, dare I say, missing persons cases. Lots of them. Especially toward the wooded areas. I'm aware that the agency knows about them. But even though I technically am working for them, I don't have high enough clearance for them to tell me what's actually going on. I'm far too expendable for that. But let's be honest, did I really expect some shadowy organization to give me details on more than what I needed to know? Absolutely not. I digress, continuing to mop the floor, leaving my flashlights over by my cart with cleaning supplies and keeping a close eye on it. The squelching of the water and light tapping on my footsteps is the only noise. Nocturnals love quiet places. Quiet, dark places. Trust me when I say that you would never have to worry about them showing up at a frat party or anything along those lines. That's unusual behavior for them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I heard one of the custodios radio in. His voice hoarse, like he had just gotten over a sore throat. More than a few red eyes on me, don't worry. I got this. They aren't scary in the least bit. That slightly cocky guy would happen to be Mark. Mark Sanchez. Unlike Tommy and I, Mark hadn't had any of his family taken. He himself was sort of a mystery. And to us, I mean not the agency. But he did inform us why he was here. From what he constantly told us... The agency had threatened to leak some sort of incriminating info about him. Something really bad, whatever it was. I prayed to the Lord that it didn't involve kids. He wouldn't go on about the details, though. Uh, might have bit off a little more than I can chew, Mark announces. I can only help but smile. Soon as he finally said something humbling. Talking about something other than his playboy ways or how much he could drink in one sitting... I pick up my walkie, raise it to my lips as I press the button to speak. It crackles to life as I lean closer. Mark, I snarl. Mark, you alright? What's going on down there? No response. Nothing but heavy breathing. Immediately, my heart begins to race. Admittedly, it wasn't because Mark might have been dead. Not directly anyway. But they may have gone to him and turned him. The last thing we needed was another nocturnal to deal with. Mark, I swear to God you better answer here, you freaking idiot. 
Tommy chimes in, his haste even more potent than mine. I'm gonna go upstairs and check on him. Wilson radios in. Wilson was the oldest and most experienced out of us. Being in his late 50s, the guy was well built and put together, which isn't hard to picture when you realize he was an ex-marine. I can't imagine what scares you after constantly being under the threat of getting blown up or shot. He was confident, not cocky like Mark though, but he knew what he was capable of handling. As to why he was there working for the agency, well, let's just say that he may or may have not committed a war crime. Yeah, I don't know the details, but from what little he's mentioned, it can't be good. I'm coming too, I respond, grabbing my flashlight off my cart and heading towards the elevator, wasting no time at all. No, Wilson shouts, stay up there, don't need them crowded more than one floor. Of course, me being a young, rookie female at this job wanted to prove myself, I didn't listen. If I could go back and change it, I would. Older people aren't right about everything, but usually if they tell you to stay away from something, it's probably in your best interest to do so. They may have had to learn the hard way, and you might next. I slam my palm on the down button on the elevator. Tommy radios into me as I do so, his speech slow and doubtful. You don't think Mark... You don't think they got him, do you? I, I don't know, but I can't let Wilson go onto that floor alone. The elevator arrives and I hop in, turning and rapidly mashing my fingers against the button for the floor below. No, 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 dang it. I said don't come here. Wilson exclaims after a heavy breath, indicating that he had just run up these stairs to get to Mark. When the elevator door opens, I practically throw myself out of it and into Mark's floor. It was what you would expect. A simple copy and paste of the other three. Chairs, desks, and computers spread all around a simple rectangular expanse. Mark was backed up in the far right corner, cowering in fear. So much for the whole tough guy act, but I secretly expected it anyway. Insecure people always have something to prove. The lights were flickering violently, more than I had ever seen them do before. As if someone was repeatedly flipping the light switch as fast as they possibly could to set a world record. Toward the far end of the room were five different pairs of glowing red eyes, coming from a pitch black wall of darkness. The Nocturnals, of course. They were staring down Mark, seemingly intrigued and simultaneously excited about his vulnerable state, knowing that he was in no position to fight back. Wilson bursts in the room from the left through the stairwell. His enhanced flashlight already turned on. He was always ready for a situation gone wrong, and this time was no exception. I followed his lead by reaching down and quickly switching mine on. Mark, on the other hand, he seemed to not have his, considering how desperate he truly looked. Where's your light? I erupted, darting across the room in his direction. They, they snatched it. I was cleaning the break room and the dark swallowed it, he panicked, backing up harder against the wall behind him. I could hear his voice crack as he sounded on the edge of tears. You're a freaking idiot. Lucky I don't knock your jaw into your brain. Wilson snarls, 
turning and pointing his light toward the opposite end of the room. Mark was right. The wall of darkness was moving, slowly inching toward us like magma sliding on the side of a freshly erupted volcano. Little by little, it covered the floors, walls, and ceiling. All the pairs of red eyes moved within the darkness, levitating forward right towards us. Our lights beamed brightly and lit the far end of the room up. Well, they did somewhat anyway, and it was enough to help drive the nocturnals back. But something about them seemed different. They were stronger, more resistant. The darkness itself continued to move toward us despite our best efforts, albeit a bit slower than before. This, this is not your, your hour, Mark, came all the different voices. A mix of both adult and child, male and female. Distorted beyond what a human should sound like. That wasn't even mentioning that it came off like a loud whisper. Wilson and I moved up toward the black wall with our lights. Toward the pairs of red eyes. Toward the nocturnals. They backed up inch by inch. But a pair of eyes began to break off from the five. Moving to the right inside the wall of darkness which of course was where Mark was isolated. The flickering of the lights in the room lit up slightly. It seems as if for the time being, we were winning. But even then, they had never put up this much resistance in the past. So, it was still really alarming. My heart was racing with adrenaline pumping through me. Come on, you shadowy freaks. Wilson roared with combated pride. You guys have got to be the biggest idiots ever. We need to get out of here. Mark exclaimed from the corner behind us, still shaking like a frightened child. I, I can't do this anymore. You guys need to hurry up and do something. I can't die because of you morons. Save me, please. We need to run. No, we can't let them get out and spread to the residential areas around here. I replied rather harshly without turning around. Oh, shut up, you freaking baby, Wilson snapped, punctuating by gritting his teeth. We had nearly pushed the nocturnals all the way back. Soon, we would drive them back far enough that the threat would be eliminated for now. That is, until I heard Mark let out a blood-curdling shriek, one that could not possibly be faked. It was easy to assume something had gone horribly wrong. I did a quick 180, Spotting Mark dashing from the corner, attempting to run away. The ceiling lights above him flickering on pace with his movements across the room. He ran up to the elevator, slamming his hand in the buttons until they were nearly smashed to pieces. And because of my turning around and shining the light elsewhere, the wall of darkness Wilson and I had worked so hard to drive out immediately began to come back, slowly advancing near us. Except there was one less pair of glowing red eyes this time. Four instead of five. Millie! Wilson shouted and for once, there was actual fear in his voice. True, grandiose, existential dread. Hearing it only made me all the more terrified. I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. The elevator door had opened in front of Mark. Both of them slowly and menacingly sliding into the gaps only to reveal a dark, empty space, with two red glowing dots inside the box hovering at eye level. The elevator itself was there, 
Only one of the Nocturnals had made it in there before poor old Mark, who of course was caught completely off guard. Since he was within rage without a powerful enough light source to protect him, Mark was suddenly snatched into the void-like space of the elevator. It was silent at first. It always is as soon as they grab you. But then he began to scream like a damned soul in hell, endlessly wailing and crying out before being muffled out by the elevator doors closing. No, no help. Please help. He shrieks, sounding much more like a little girl than a grown man. I turned around and held my light in front of me in order to assist Wilson. Mark was now gone, lost to the nocturnals and now faded to join their ranks. There was nothing that we could do. But once again, they fought back against Wilson and I. This time, the black wall went around the area of our light source, as if they were attempting to flank. I'm here, I'm here, came Tommy's explosive outburst. He dashed in from the stairwell door, panting and gripping his light device. Well, don't just stand there like a ragdoll. Hurry up and help, Wilson barked at him. Tommy switched his light onto full power as Wilson and I had done, turning his back to ours and focusing on the darkness that was beginning to lurk behind. They've never fought this hard before. What's going on? Tommy cried out, reiterating what Wilson and I were already thinking. I don't know. We just gotta drive them out of here and then survive until sunrise. With Mark now dead in one of the floors left to the eventual takeover of the Nocturnals, it clicked in my mind that we would soon be sent a replacement. The agency didn't really value human life all that much, but I'm sure them taking our innocent family members as hostages probably already conveyed that. Soon enough, the wall of darkness was pushed all the way back, and by extension, the nocturnals lurking inside it, the red dots dissipating as it faded. We were safe for the time being. And we went back to our respective floors in order to check if any activity had occurred while we were all busy on Mareks. Thank God there wasn't, or we would have been in serious trouble. When the morning came round, it was blissful, cathartic, giving me a feeling of relief that I didn't think was possible with a job like this. And not to that degree anyway. Wilson did call the agency and let them know about what had happened to Mark. They told us that they already knew about it and to stay put because they'll be coming over soon to assess the damage, as well as figure out our next replacement. Meaning they were going to find some other person, kidnap their relatives and force them to work here during nights, just like us. Maybe they wouldn't but that seemed unlikely. Luckily, it was a Saturday so the normal everyday people who had no idea what was going on here weren't coming in for work. Wilson, Tommy, and I all look out the window to see three different armored SUVs all pulling up on the street below. The doors swing open and a variety of personnel step out. Two were what I assumed to be security, although they were definitely more geared than your average security guard. Dressed in all black with body armor and fully automatic rifles slung around their torsos, they both appeared ready to take on a small army. I could make out a more curvy figure underneath the gear of one of them, indicating it was a woman. 
Out of these second SUVs stepped an older looking man dressed in an extremely expensive looking suit and tie. No wrinkles, no stains. It was pretty much in perfect condition from what I could tell anyway. And then, from the third and final vehicle emerged a man similar in age to the one in the suit. Probably in his late 40s or so. He wore a simple outfit consisting of jeans, sneakers, and a long-sleeve gray wool shirt. They entered the building and took these stairs up to our floor, not wanting to risk taking a chance of encountering the nocturnal that had assimilated Mark. Due to the lack of light inside the actual box of the elevator, when they enter, I hear both the man in the suit and the one in the gray sweater loudly arguing over something that I had no knowledge of. No, erupts the man in the suit, ferociously pointing his finger at the one in the gray sweater. This isn't what you went through. It's not that peril crap. I'm not wasting resources recapturing him anymore. He's gone. He made up his mind and clearly doesn't want to follow our orders anymore. So, he'll die instead. But sir, the gray sweater man shoots back, his demeanor much more calm than the man in the suits. He's way more useful to us alive. Tell X1 not to kill him. They'll end up killing Dr. John too. The man in the suit turns around, flashing gray sweater a look of utter ridicule. Oh, right. Because I'm sure you care so much about John. Screw John. I've never seen you even talk to him. They both need to die. He's getting too dangerous and is learning too much. End of story. I'm not arguing anymore. And defeated in the verbal battle, the man in the gray sweater simply sighs and rolls his eyes before reaching into his pocket to retrieve a notepad and pencil. He then begins to scan the room, walking around to look at things and take notes of whatever he sees. The man in the suit now approaches Wilson, Tommy, and I, reaching out to shake his hand. May, director of operations, but just call me Ted, he says, introducing himself with not much flair or excitement. We've been waiting on you, I said bluntly, matching his lack of exterior emotion. How many more nights do we gotta keep coming here? Are you ever gonna let my mother go? She's innocent and didn't do anything. And Ted groans, not even attempting to hide his irritation at my probing. You know, I could just kill you and your mom and be done with it, right? You're lucky I'm even wasting resources feeding and keeping her alive. I'll just find somebody else who knows who when to shut up and quit asking questions. Rage quickly rose inside of me. It took every ounce of willpower that I had to not strike this sociopath right in his mouth. There he was, standing there taunting me about my still-captive mother, making vicious threats because he knows he's got meatheads with guns to protect him. A typical coward. I don't care what your title is. You need to watch how you're talking to people. Wilson steps up, marching toward the director. Men, you were supposed to be dead a while ago. You want to make that a reality right now? Ted fires back, calling one of the armed personnel over. He quickly paces across the room, standing next to Ted and pointing the barrel of his rifle right at Wilson's head. Wilson is, of course, unfazed, but he still doesn't try anything stupid. That don't scare me. I've had one too many guns pointed at me in my years. 
You're gonna have to do better than that. He taunts, only inviting more conflict. I would be lying if I said I wasn't morbidly entertained. Wilson, I... Tommy says, trying to intervene, only to be cut off by Ted holding up a finger in the air, signaling for him to be quiet and stay out of it. You're right. My thread seems too hollow, doesn't it? Ted asked rhetorically, before motioning to the armed agent once again. The agent then suddenly takes one hand off his rifle, it now only being held with his left. With his free right, he launches a sudden swing at Wilson, hitting him in the chin with a hostile right hook. Wilson slightly stumbles to the side and regains his balance before almost falling onto his back, using his sleeve to wipe away some blood from his bottom lap. Hey, what the heck, I shout, inches away from shoving Ted myself. It's fine, Wilson retorts. He's just showing he was too wuss to hit me himself. All right, all right, enough. Tommy steps in, darting his eyes between all of us. Let's just try and wrap up at least one problem without violence. That's all these idiots know is violence, I reply. We're here in the first place because of violence. Oh, and guess what we're doing? Pretending to be regular custodians so we can prevent violent things from happening to innocent people. Where do you get off choosing what folks get caught up in your web of shady BS and which ones don't? I finish once again, glaring at Ted with a murderous stare. I can't help it. Something in me snaps like never before. I basically become a walking tirade of bottled up despair and fury. And despair and fury that was now being unleashed with no filter to accompany it. You act like you're vigilantly protecting the world, but no. I know what you are, what your whole organization is. Nothing but a bunch of cowards sitting behind computer screens and guns. You can't do the dirty work yourself, so you get others to. Ted was unbothered by my vicious ranting. He simply crossed his arms and stood patiently, as he waited for me to finally shut up and quiet down. Are you done? Because we have things we gotta get done today. And I don't have time to sit around and talk politics, he adds, pausing for a moment to call over to the guy in the gray sweater. Hey, Ted, why don't you come walk with this lady and get the story of what happened here? She seems to need to cool off anyway. After he said it, I clenched my fist. I was never a person who had gotten into many fights my whole life, but I was by far willing to make an exception for this jerk. He was pulling my strings onto every last nerve. However, though, I don't. Keeping my hands to myself and putting self-control in the forefront of my mind, not wanting to make a stupid move that could potentially get me beaten, tortured, or worse. Ten and I take these stairs down and exit the building to take a short walk along the road. While I recall the events of what happened, everything from the nocturnals seemingly becoming more adaptable to our weapons up to Mark's foolish yet unfortunate death. Through all of it, he listened and did it well. A trait you don't see very often in a lot of people. Especially when it's something that they don't want to hear. But then again, I'm sure that it was his job. What's your assignment with him anyway? I ask. You like a reporter or something? He smiles, putting his pencil away and closing up his notepad. No, no, a researcher. 
There's a definitely better jobs out there, but the pay is what truly makes it worth it. Trust me when I say, I don't trust the government or people of their type just like you do. Then why do you work for them? I inquire. Well, my alternative was death, so not really much of a choice. Plus, living in the facility is way better than in the middle of the woods, especially where I was at. I can't complain about the food and rec room. I've been hounding Ted to let us bring Ben and Jerry's in there, though he won't bite. I stop walking and he does as well, both of us turning to face each other. There is an underlying hint of mutual understanding. What was so wrong about living in the woods? I ask, causing him to rest his eyebrows. My question inoffensive. It's a long and I mean long story. Point is, is that I want to help people, protect them against all these strange, harmful forces, which I can do with all the resources they provide me with. But don't get me wrong, Ted is a moron, yeah, yeah, he technically gave me the job or whatever, but you're far from the only one that doesn't like him. Being in charge already makes you prone to ridicule, but he practically asked for it. I decide to change the subject now genuinely enjoying my time with the man in question. Is Tin your first name, I quiz. No, it's my last. I'm just not a big fan of my first. I got teased about it quite a lot in grade school. Kids were a lot more brutal back in the day. I can still count all the times I've had other people's food dumped on my head, but all the lunch money stealing brutes. You'd be surprised when you got social media, the bullying doesn't end at the school doors. Yeah, that's a fair point. But I'm sure you didn't just want to ask me about the things you could read on my birth certificate. So go ahead, shoot. All in all, I didn't have much else in mind that I wanted to question him on. The objective of our walk had been carried out already. But I wanted to delay having to go back and hearing Ted run his mouth some more. I hadn't even been around him that long to begin with, but this already felt like a huge breath of fresh air. You said that you lived out in the woods, correct? Yeah, why? How did they find you? The agency, a satellite imagery or something? And Tin chuckles, taking a second to glance at the ground and shake his head before answering my question. No, I was making some posts online. Some posts pertaining to the situation. It caught their attention, I guess. But like I said, a long story I don't think you want to sit through. But we should get back before Ted loses it. His patient runs low pretty quickly if you haven't noticed. I audibly groan as he spills the beans, informing me about the one thing I didn't want to come to fruition. It's like getting told to do chores as a kid. It's inevitable but never enjoyable. So we went back. And Ted scolded the both of us for taking too long. Not that I expected anything different if I was being totally honest. I literally said, thank God out loud as they loaded their gear back into the SUVs and drove off. As I also clearly wasn't the only one feeling that kind of satisfaction. It was all over Wilson and Tommy's faces as well. As for the situation on our replacement... They said we would have one by the time the weekend came to an end. I guess taking people captive as insurance doesn't take very long for them. 
The three of us went home to enjoy the rest of the day until we had to return that same night. I immediately kicked my shoes off and went to the fridge looking for something I could put together for a meal. I scanned both the top, middle, and bottom shelf, quickly becoming clear that I was in dire need of a trip to the grocery store. And that's not to mention I didn't feel like spending an extra money on delivery services and shipping fees. So, I figured I would go out to get my food from McDonald's or something along those lines. It was cheap, easy, and quick. Closer in line to what I had the energy for. I take the drive there, going on the more scenic route to make it feel that much more special. It's not all that bad though. Some of the architecture of my neighborhood is quite unique. Plenty of designs that you don't see in most places. It's still a decent distance from the office building now. My neighborhood was much more lively with people. Kids outside in their driveways. Dads working in the yard. Stuff like that. The kind of life I wished I had. I pulled up to the drive-thru, ordered my food, and waited in a small line for the first window to pay for what I got. A large dumpster sits off to the right side of my car, one slot open and the rest closed, making the inside of it dark, really dark, far less lit than it should have been. Looking out my windshield, the cars in front of me are still, no lights on and not moving, nothing coming out of the exhaust pipes. I take another glance back at the dumpster. Two red, glowing dots sit inside it, watching me and not moving in the slightest. They continue to stay fixed on me for what I can only describe as nearly a minute. I don't blink or draw breath. I just simply stare back. There's a silence. Time seems to stop almost completely. In fact, the world itself stops. And so does everything in it. Luckily, the nocturnal doesn't move forward. The sunlight preventing it from exiting the dumpster itself. Instead, I hear it call to me, speaking in the now far too recognizable distorted voice. Me took me, showed me the greatness of the dark. Leave the light behind me. The light is meaningless, it holds you back. Only may you find true salvation without it. I knew what it was, or rather, who it was. The voice sounded a lot more like him once I came to the chilling but rather obvious realization. Mark, or what Mark had become. He was another one of them now. His transformation itself didn't shock me. No, it was the fact he was stalking me. Haunting me specifically. Something the Nocturnals only really did when going after a specific bloodline of people. But it wasn't impossible. Like I said, we didn't know too much about them. So maybe it was something that I had missed. But what I did know was that he wanted my attention. He wanted me to be scared. But I wouldn't give him that satisfaction. He was limited in the daytime, so I was safe for the time being. The car behind me beeps impatiently, causing me to jump in my seat. I turn my head to lay eyes upon the culprit. A man in a white Volkswagen slams his palm angrily against his steering wheel. Come on, lady, you're holding everybody up. I want my dang Big Mac. I pull further up, grab my food and drive off. 
scarfing it down with one hand, still held steady on the wheel. It's a little reckless, and I usually wouldn't. But it's not like this was a normal day. None of my days for the past several months had been normal. I go home and sleep for the remainder of the day, setting an alarm for 8.30. I needed to be at the office building by 8.45 in order to prepare for the night. I meet Tommy and Wilson in the lobby once I arrive. We grab our lights and gear as we talk about how our replacement will potentially end up being. I hope it's a lady, scoffs Wilson, groaning as he picks up his light and starts inspecting it. It's been a bit of a sausage fest around here. No offense, Tom. Can you not call me Tom? It makes me sound old. Tommy's a bit more youthful. No, it's fine, you big baby. Uh, but you'll get there someday. Trust me, and when you do, it'll hit you like a ton of bricks. Wilson retorts. I just hope they're not a complete hollowhead. Not that Mark deserved what he got. I chimed in. I don't totally care if I'm being honest. He made dumb decisions and he paid the price for it. Natural selection just doing its job. Came Wilson's cold reply. It was harsh but correct. Suddenly, we hear the door swing open. The three of us turn our heads to see a woman enter the lobby. She looks seemingly familiar, slightly above average height with a voluptuous figure. I could have sworn that I recognized her. She possessed short brown hair only going just past her ears, her eyes being the same color. She had this aura about her. It was warming, but yet unsettling at the same time. So, which family members of yours did they take? Tommy probes, skipping the more generic courtesies. You go through any schooling? Wilson says, following Tommy's questioning. Guys, guys. I say holding up a hand. She literally just got here. Give her a second. The woman frowns. Silence falls upon the room. There's nothing going on except the staring between the three of us and her. It seemed almost like she was waiting for one of us to make a move. Well? I ask, not becoming impatient while still maintaining my distance. And then, without speaking or responding to our many courtesies, her eyes shift from brown to red. Her skin slowly transforms into a truly pitch black palette, the color of a void, a deep, endless void, blacker than space or the deepest reaches of the sea. Her eyes light up, as if she had just flicked on red beams into her skull. And it soon becomes apparent to all of us what she is. Crap, grab your lights, Tommy shouts, retrieving his device and shining it towards the nocturnal woman. But it does nothing. She stands there in her blackened form, not laughing, moving, or taunting. She just lets us see that she's different from the rest. The fact that she's not like the others, not in the slightest. Wilson and I both got our lights as well, shining them directly at her. Once again, she doesn't move so much as an inch, only standing there continuously staring us down. I'm not here to hurt you. I want to help you. I know what I look like and what you probably think I'll do, but I can assure you that I'm on your side. I don't think like them. I promise you. She pleads, 
her voice now distorted like the nocturnals. Far above what it was just minutes ago. Then you better get talking fast, Wilson barks, his no-nonsense attitude emerging yet again. The nocturnal woman holds a hand out and suddenly, all of our lights begin to flicker rapidly. Something other nocturnals had never done before. Not with these lights. It wasn't only that, but the fact that she could seem to transform into her human form at will. Usually, once someone became a nocturnal, that was it. That was the end of their previous existence as a human being. The guys in black who hired you, I was one of them. I showed up earlier today with the director. I was one of the ones in the security gear. Your actual replacement. He was supposed to be here. He was just a regular guy like you. But he offed himself. Said he would rather die than work for the agency. So, in last minute desperation, they took me instead. They said they needed something more than just another regular guy with light weapons. She trails off. The pitch black covering over her skin fading away and revealing a human form once more. The one she had when she had walked in. So what did they do? The experiments on you or something? Wilson probes. Sort of. I volunteered to help. But they didn't tell me they would be doing this. Making me into a better version of one of them. The director told me to hang up all my gear and weapons and then follow him. He led me to one of the laboratories in the facility. A bunch of the other agents pinned me down and strapped me to a table and injected me with God knows what. Beyond agonizing, I was fighting and screaming the whole time. The way it felt going through my veins. God, I hated it. Every second of it. Felt like they were putting acid inside of me. Don't even know why I'm still alive or whatever this is. She says, looking at both of her hands. I'm sorry, I tell her. I really am. We didn't mean to be so hostile at first. We didn't know all about this. I step forward, placing a hand on his shoulder. I'm not. Wilson steps forward. How do I know you're not playing us? That you're just a more advanced version of them. The red eyes. If I wanted to kill you guys, I would have done it. Granted, I'm still learning how to use these abilities. If that's what you can even call them. But I still would need to remember to kick your butt anyway. Special ops, remember? So, I would stand down just a bit if I were you. Wilson lifted his head, letting his chin appear more prominent. I expected him to come back with something harsh or witty, telling her that she's a moron or doesn't know who she's messing with. But instead, he just smirks and laughs. A woman with a fighting spirit. I like it. Anyway, the woman continues... The lab coats studied them as best as they could. They still weren't able to learn all that much. So, when they finished injecting whatever it was into me, they took me to a forest where it could get pretty dark even in the day. It wasn't far from the compound. Some of them were there. The red eyes. They practically just gave me to them without a second thought, without knowing the true end result. Of course they took me, Snatched me up into the darkness and assimilated me. But it wasn't like the others. I didn't feel like the darkness was my only option. I could still think and process things like my old self. Listen, 
Tommy speaks up. I'm sorry about all this happening to you, but we still don't know if we can fully trust you. We've just been through too much with those psychopaths, but if you're willing to prove yourself, then I know for a fact that I'll change my mind. As if on cue, the front door bursts open again and through it comes the researcher in the gray sweater from earlier, Ten. He looks out of breath, wheezing and panting like a dog as he tries to obtain enough oxygen to speak coherently. They're starting to spread outside of this building and area, he says, lifting himself up and taking a gulp of air. A couple of them chased me with a wall of darkness, and since it's nighttime, they have a lot more aggro. I know, I saw one when I was going to get food of there. They're evolving, like she is, I say, pointing to the woman. We can't let them get that powerful. You can call me Isabella, she corrects. And they won't. At least they won't be able to change into their human form or anything that extreme. I don't think so anyway. The stuff they juiced me up with is what makes the difference between us. But as far as how much darkness they can control and how they can move through it, we need to put a stop to that. Who knows how many more are out there. Not just here, but all around the world. You guys can trust her. Tin says, stepping forward. She's telling the truth and got screwed over by the agency. Who hasn't? Tommy asked rhetorically. I'm still learning how to use these powers and I don't know how much help I'll be. Came Isabella's two cents. But I'll do everything I can. We need everything we can get. Wilson interjects. So you're going to have to learn quick. Because this is getting out of control. We can't just sit here and let them spread from this building. Not any more than they already have. If they're tied to this building, bound to this general area, maybe we could destroy it and that would help get rid of them, says Tommy. If it's their beacon, then we need to take it out of the equation. I can go into the darkness and try to take them out, as many as I can. Isabella chimes in. Once I take the form of them, I have their abilities but not their weaknesses. As long as it's not a specialite, I should be fine. What the hell is a specialite? I quizzed. The only light that weakens me so far. Even your guys' lights won't do it. It's this weird purple color. I think one of these scientists at the facility said it was created by dark matter. All I know is that as long as no one has it, I should be okay. Are we sure we want to straight up destroy the building? I know this is a bad situation and all, but I'm sure we'll piss off Ted by attracting attention. I say, bringing up a valid point. Screw the agency, Ten remarks. I'm with them because I have to be, not because I wanna. Most of us in here are. There are no people or other infrastructure within two miles of here. We'll be fine. If we're gonna do this, Isabella announces, there's enough propane in the basement of this place to blow it sky high. But not all of us can make it down there. The basement is a dang maze, Tommy adds. We need people up here as well making sure they don't escape just in case. Ted and his goons will have some sort of cover story for when this place blows. Either that or they'll just tell the government to deal with it, Ten adds. Either way, I think we'll be fine. I darn my eyes between the five of us. I obviously wanted the most capable and strong to be with me which in my opinion was definitely Wilson and Isabella. 
but that would leave one side more vulnerable than the other. So, we needed to strike a balance on the teams. Alright, I know I don't usually call the shots, but I'm doing it anyway. I proclaim while stepping forward. Wilson, Tommy, you guys should grab your lights and watch the outside. If they get too far away, then radio me. Tin and Isabella will be going into the basement with me to find the biggest propane tank we can. We'll make sure to do it in a way where we have some time to run out of the building before it blows. No, Wilson says. Trust me. The deer that stored propane tanks in the basement obviously wanted to get someone killed. I'll go down there. I'm not letting you risk your life. You still got plenty of time left on this planet. It looks like you really do have a heart after all. Tommy jokes. Oh, shut it. Wilson barks back. Wilson, I... You can't. Trust me, I would... I'd try to get out before Wilson holds up a hand. I've only got a couple of decades left. And definitely done some things even my mama would disown me for. And just in case I don't make it out. Tell that toke isn't Ted I said good riddance and next time you see him. Isabella can come with you. Tommy says, fighting Wilson's conviction. No... We need her up here where most of the red eyes are. Now hurry up, grab your lights and get moving. We don't got time to argue anymore. He was right, it was nearly 9 o'clock. Meaning it was also almost dark enough for them to stand out in the open with no sort of cover. Night was coming in, so were they. As it's already been said, they're evolving and getting smarter. I don't know how or why, but they are. If we don't stop them now... This group, at least, who knows what could happen. Even though I didn't choose to be in this position, it now felt like my duty to the world to make sure the Nocturnals don't assimilate all of it. We obviously couldn't account for all the Nocturnals in other places, but this spot was now our responsibility despite none of us truly wanting it. Ask yourself if you're really willing to die, Isabella says, looking to Wilson. I went to war more than once. I always have been, he muttered unceremoniously. All of us except Tin and Isabella grabbed our lights off the rack. Wilson retrieves a rather large blade hidden under his pants strapped along the side of his ankle. Just in case I encounter anything other than the red eyes down there, he informed us. Would have brought a gun, but they ain't gonna let us have one of those. He then turns and heads for the staircase leading down into the basement, walking with confidence putting his lack of fear on full display. He was as brave as he always claimed to be. Even though I didn't know what terrible things he might have done in the past, I respected his courage. Tommy, Isabella, Ted, and I all finished acquiring what we needed and head outside, right into the proverbial lion's den. The nocturnals were out there, waiting for us. The streetlights were flickering as they usually would in the presence of these beings. I saw at least a dozen pairs of red glowing eyes, all of them focused on us, waiting for us to get close enough. Come join the darkness, they all chanted simultaneously. The light is a burden. Their voices joining together in a shockingly noisy whisper with the decibel level of a shotgun blast. They were lined up along the street. There weren't many other structures or buildings around to provide light beside the lamps themselves. Definitely not enough to stop them. Oh boy, Tommy says, hesitance present in his tone. 
that this is going to be a tall order. Tin got closer to Tommy, indicating he would share the light device with him. Great, Tin began. First, I gotta worry about getting flayed alive. And now I have to worry about becoming a freakish nectophile. I guess the universe really isn't my biggest fan. I'll take the first strike, Isabella adds, stepping forward and changing into her nocturnal form. I lift my light as the other nocturnals start to levitate towards us within the darkness. I swiftly turn around to notice that they're starting to come from all sides, up in the ante of the situation. We had to take them out here and now before it was too late. Isabella turns and gives me a nod, the glow of her red eyes piercing into my soul. I can't help but find them almost beautiful, at least when they're on her they are. She levitates slightly off the ground, an aura of darkness surrounding her. The battle quickly commences. She destroys the light of the closest street lamp in front of her, shrouding these spots in a void. The other nocturnals quickly converge in her, attempting to dogpile an attack. She throws them off but not without a struggle, groaning as I see her tossing them every which way, flinging them like frisbees while they relentlessly pursue her. Isabella then levitates higher into the area of the pitch black void. I can just barely see the outline of her arms as she waves them around. She was definitely easier to see than the others. I wasn't sure if that was purposeful or not. Six of the nocturnals go flying outside of the area towards us, making them much more vulnerable and allowing the rest of us to move in for the kill. Two land near me. I quickly leap over and shine my weaponized light device onto them as they screech and howl, as if they were demons that had just been touched by Christ himself. A few nocturnals come up on Tin and Tommy. They both stumbled backwards, only just barely avoiding being grabbed and assimilated. I run over to them, shining my lights and pushing the ones in them back far enough to where they aren't a threat, buying them some time to get back to their feet. I found one of the tanks, but there's a good group of them outside the door. Wilson radios in. They're not looking too good for me. Use your light. Do whatever you can. I shout back. I'm getting to work on heating it up. I'll try to make it out, but no promises. I want you all taking care of yourselves now. Wilson replies, ignoring my attempt at giving an order. As Tin, Tommy, and I all stand back to back, keeping our lights up. Isabella dashes inside a cylinder of darkness, jumping into the air and performing a kick onto one of the nocturnals, and then slamming together the heads of two more, proceeding to throw their bodies outside the wall of darkness, where we can shine our lights on them to finish them off. She maneuvers her way over to the front of the building, raises two shadowy hands into the air, and causes all the lights inside to violently flicker as another batch of nocturnals come rushing toward her. One seems to get a successful hit from what I can tell, and she slides back several feet but ends up catching herself, getting up and dashing over, grabbing him, and then levitates him up about a hundred feet off the ground before spinning like a tornado and throwing him outside of the darkness. I think I'm getting the hang of this, Isabella shouts, the echo of her voice carrying down to the street. They're getting inside, the red eyes. And the lights are starting to flicker and bust in the basement. Wilson radios in again. The tank is almost heated enough. 
I'm sorry. Wilson, Tommy growls, handing his light over to Tin to hold up as he grabs his walkie-talkie. Come on, you gotta fight your way out of there. Don't just give up. There's a silence at least between us three. Isabella is still dashing around the three of us in a circle, letting out all sorts of battle cries and shouts as she disposes of her nocturnal foes. Get away from the dang building now. Wilson snarls at us through the walkie-talkie. I won't ask it a second time. You better not argue. It's gonna blow. Wilson, Tommy says more softly, attempting to speak before being cut off by a furious Wilson. What did I just tell you, boy? Get running now. Don't make me come back from the dead and teach you how to do what you're told. Tommy and I both exchange a glance, knowing what was to happen. With the nocturnals more dispersed and less plentiful, we run forward across the street into a low-cut field, being slowed down a bit by our lights. But it doesn't matter. My eardrums were nearly shattered as the building behind us exploded, like an oversized firecracker, sending debris in all directions and throwing the three of us forward. I slide forward a couple of feet along the ground, some grass and dirt staining my cheek and making me gag as some gets into my mouth. A couple drops of blood fall from my nose, making me taste iron as it reaches my mouth. With my ears ringing and my head pounding, I swiftly turn to look back at the smoking, smoldering mess that was once the building. All sorts of charred metal, rock, brick, and pieces of concrete stacked on top of each other. Tommy and Tin both complain quite a bit as they get to their feet, and Tin in particular holding his ribcage due to him being on the older side. You son of a gun, he growls, coughing rather loudly for a few seconds. I look around to see all the nocturnals near the building almost fading out, looking like glitched items in a video game as they begin to disappear, with the exception of Isabella, of course. We had done it. We had stopped them. I can only help but daydream of all the potential celebrations of the victory, thanks to mainly Wilson and Isabella. But then, I turn my attention forward once again and in front of me, is an area of darkness covering about 10 square feet and standing 7 feet high. And not too far above me is a pair of red glowing eyes, looking down right into mine. Join us, Millie, he commands, making it clear to me who he was. Mark. He was back and the only one left that had him destroyed or affected by what Wilson had done. I pointlessly get to my feet and try to run but I am snatched into the darkness by him, unable to escape or move out of his clutches. No, Millie! Tommy cries. Assimilation. Nocturnal Mark says, right before I feel an extremely cold force run itself through the inside of my body, as if someone had just pumped with my blood vessels with liquid nitrogen. The process was beginning. I would soon become one of them. Of being an entity, a demon, it didn't matter. All I know is that my humanity would be drained, and then it would quite literally be lights out. I would be nothing but a red-eyed freak who wanted to drown the planet in a permanent void. But then I hear a passionate cry, only one a warrior charging in the battlefield could produce. Isabella dives into the space of darkness, 
Tackling Mark and stopping my transformation as a result. No, no. She, she needs to, to leave the light behind. behind. Mark bellowed in a hostile tone, returning Isabella's force by seemingly hitting her back. She isn't going to do a dang thing, Isabella uttered, recovering from the blow and quickly dashing over and grabbing me. She proceeds to lift me up with no strain in her effort and throws me out of the darkness, allowing the space to be a small battleground for both her and Mark. You will pay for what you've done. They need the darkness we all do. You're a traitor. And I will treat you no differently than one. Mark snarls, levitating above Isabella, displaying that he was almost similar in abilities to her. I can't wait to make you shut your mouth. Isabella booms in return. I'm only inches from the street as I get to my feet. Moving out of the way in case Isabella and Mark move the space of darkness and the chaos of their grandiose supernatural showdown for ultimate dominance. Look, Tin shouts. I swerve my head around like a crazed pigeon, looking down the road as four different armored vehicles approach the area. The agency. We must have caught their attention. They get closer, one of the SUVs in the front and a semi-truck with a reinforced trailer in the far back. They stop not too far from us. A bunch of armored security personnel bursting out of the trailer of the semi. Body armor, assault rifles, night vision goggles and everything. Go, go, go. The one in the front shouts, pacing forward with his rifle held in front of him. But they weren't the only ones. No. Two guards in what appeared to be these special suits followed them out. And when I say special, I mean they were covered from head to toe in what looked like battle mech suits that you would see in a fighting game, but much more slick and made to fit them more tightly, allowing them more mobility when in combat. Mark and Isabella continue their battle, the area of their fight expanding. They did what amounted to trading blows from what I could tell. Isabella was clearly winning, but not easily. Mark seemingly had her by the throat and slammed her onto the floor before picking her up once again and throwing her towards the edge of the darkness. Isabella caught herself, stopping midair and flying back to Mark at full speed in order to counter what he had done. Now, while Mark had been giving her a run for her money due to these further knowledge of the abilities themselves, Isabella had her previous combative training and raw power to give her the edge. Oh, what's with the power suits? Tin yells as Ted gets out of one of the SUVs. When a multi-million dollar killing machine escapes your custody, you learn to change your strategies up. He replies, no emotion existing in his expression. I had no idea what he meant, so I simply shrugged his answer off with nothing more than a simple frown. The agents in these suits run toward the darkness, jumping in to assist Isabella, while the ones with the guns and regular body armor stay back, keeping their rifles trained on the spot. There is a struggle. The men in the suits groan and yell inside the black wall before being suddenly flung out of it by Mark. It was clear they were no match for him and their efforts to assist Isabella were useless. One goes slamming into the trailer of the truck, denting the rectangular-shaped metal with a loud bang, part of his suit cracking dramatically. The other one simply goes straight up into the air above, well above 200 feet before starting to fall back down, but small balls of fire burst out from the bottom of his metallic boots, allowing him to catch himself and fly. Sir, these suits are not equipped for this entity. 
the one flying in the air says, looking down towards Ted. Ted turns his attention to the armed personnel with the more traditional gear, raising a finger as he screamed a command. Try the ectomagnets, you idiots. Save your ammo. Bullets don't work in them. One of the armed men grabbed a urine-colored, triangular-shaped device from his weapons belt and threw it toward Isabella and Mark. It boomed with a white light, sort of like a flashbang, but nothing came out of it. I've had enough. Isabella roars, her voice practically shaking the ground as she does, though. Suddenly, Nocturnal Mark comes crashing out of the darkness and onto the street, allowing us to attack him in his vulnerable state thanks to Isabella's handiwork. Me, Tin, Tommy, and all the agents focused as much light as physically possible at the time onto him. He screeches and thrashes around, attempting to get away like the rest had tried. His completely dark fingers gripping the wheel of one of the SUVs as he tried to pull himself under the vehicle. Don't stop until he's gone, men. Ted commands them. Isabella floats out of the darkness, waving a hand and making it all vanish, only leaving behind the natural shade of the night to cover the area instead. And after doing so, she then switches back to her human form, watching us finish off Nocturnal Mark with a satisfied smile. That was the guy who killed and mutilated my husband. Serves you right, you piece of crap. His screams of pain soon faded as he began to seemingly glitch out of reality and fade away like his comrades had done when Wilson blew the building, leaving no sort of matter or traces of his existence left behind. I couldn't help but release an obnoxious exhale, one that bounced right back into my face due to Tommy running up and hugging me. We did it, he shrieked joyfully. I can't believe it. That makes us heroes. Don't get too comfortable, you idiot, Ted says, quickly shutting us down. They're still spread out around parts of the planet. They're not gone, far from it. We got rid of one group. But Wilson, I say, darting my eyes towards the rubble of the office building. Yeah, that's what happens. If it wasn't this, it would have been the Marines that did him in. I clenched my fist before he even completed his last sentence. And without thinking, I take a swing at Ted. Only for my blow to be stopped and root by ten. I hadn't been thinking. I had just let my anger take over, and I had enough of his mouth, and I know I wasn't the only one. Don't. It's not worth it. He informs me while looking into my eyes with his, his face doing the talking. I'd be willing to make an exception for this numbskull. All of this is because of him. All of it. What he did to us, our families, Isabella. He gave the order, and he needs to pay. I go off furiously. Ted stands not far in front of me, obviously not bothered by my tirade. You'll get a 20% bonus in your bank account if that'll shut you up, Ted replies. I want my mother freed. I don't care about stupid money. I want Tommy to have his son back. I want to go back to a normal life. No, Ted shoots back. We still have plans for you all. But since you were actually useful today, I'll tell you what. We'll allow you weekly visits with your family members at our Site-12 facility after it's repaired. Of course, both you and Tommy will be blindfolded and sensory deprived on the way there so you don't know the location. What do you mean repaired? Tin says, stepping forward. I was just there this afternoon. 
A rogue chopper of ours shot a missile at our weapons room and blew a hole in the side of the building. It damaged our alarm and security breach systems. We're having it fixed as we speak. So, what it is, we'll allow you to visit. Ted groans, clearly irritated and not wanting to answer further questions. I'm not dealing with nocturnals anymore, I growled. So, you're either going to have to find me something different or kill me, but you will not lay a finger on my mother. Isabella then approaches us still in her human form, a smile plastered on her face. I want something for what you did to me back at the facility, she demands. You just threw me to them, not knowing what would happen. You're a freaking sociopath, even more than Dr. West was. Watch it, Ted snaps. And fine, you'll receive a bonus as well, bigger than theirs. But if you try to run or turn on us, I will send every single agent in our supernatural department after you, and everything you hold dear. I've had enough of our experiments running away from us, and I won't let it happen again. Oh, I see. I'm just an experiment to you, she says bitterly, crossing her arms to punctuate. All those years of being an agent and serving this place, and this is what I get. Tommy then tilts his head as he rests a hand on her arm, doing everything he could to calm her down as he had done with me. I think we could all use a meal. I know a good cafe in town that I go to quite often. They've got grape coffee and breakfast. Definitely recommend the eggs and bacon. Tin interjects. Remember your situations and do not try anything funny or we will know. Ted chimes in to eyeing us all. We'll contact you all by next week once this is all sorted out. And wait, there's one thing. I bring up. How did you guys show up so quickly and know the building exploded? It was bugged not only that, but the cameras are operated by us during the night. So when we heard a boom and then all feed was suddenly cut off... It raised alarms. One more thing. Tommy steps aside. Uh, what is it? I swear you guys are going to make me blow my brains out with all this nonsense. Ted wails. That wouldn't be the worst thing. Tin chuckles. There should be a funeral for Wilson. He sacrificed himself to help us stop the red eyes. Take it out of my salary if you need to. Tommy said firmly. No room for any argument. You want to have a funeral for that war criminal? Ted asked, dumbfoundedly. As if you're any better, Isabella remarks. She was right, but I didn't know when this mess would end. The world was becoming stranger and stranger by the second, and I didn't know how to deal with it. But one thing was for sure. This was not the end of this. Any of this. I hope you all enjoyed today's stories, and I appreciate you listening. Speaking of stories, I would like to of course give a huge thank you to our sponsor today, StoryWorth. Make sure to head on over to storyworth.com slash mrcreeps, where you can get $10 off your first purchase. Additionally, thank you very much to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. Remember that CreepsCast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps. I hope you all have a great day or night wherever you're at in the world. And as always, stay creepy.